You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where we talk about two movies as part of a drive-in double feature from a list of over 1,700 films. These are randomly selected. This week we've got A Fistful of Dollars, Sergio Leone's classic Spaghetti Western, and Enter the Ninja from Menachem Golan, or Golan, I've heard it both ways, the Israeli filmmaker, a part of Canon Films, of course. It's our first Golan Globus production. And I'm joined by my usual host, Jim. Hello. And a reminder that we are brought to you by the Grandma Sophia's Podcast Network. Be sure to check out Grandma Sophia's Cookies blog for all of your music and pop culture needs. And I'm even going to say wants because I don't think hearing us talk about Enter the Ninja is really a need for anyone, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. No, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But anyways, yeah. Unless you have any uh, initial notes, I, I, I would like to hear your kind of thoughts on A Fistful of Dollars, our first film this week. Uh, you know what? This, this this is a hot take, okay? Coming in hot. Coming in very oh hot. God. I don't this know. This movie sucks. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. Uh, no, I, I don't know what most people's opinions are of the movies out of the Dollars trilogy. Um, okay. But I will say this is the one I like the most. Okay. That, yeah. that is, I b- do believe that is a hot take because the Dollars trilogy that you reference is, it's a, it's one of those, it's actually probably very similar to the Ninja trilogy that Enter the Ninja <laughs> is the first film of because these are films that aren't really connected okay. because there's Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja 3, The Domination, and with Sergio Leone, you have A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 1964, 65, 66. In this case, there's more of a connection because it's all Sergio Leone and it's all Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that is a hot take. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is definitely considered the best. I think a lot of people would have, for a few dollars more even, above a fistful of dollars. I wouldn't, but for a few dollars more is also the one I've seen far and away the least. So I, I, I don't feel like I have as much a, you know, a, a connection to it. I, I, I don't know it as well. Maybe if I were to see it again, like tomorrow, maybe I'd be like, whoa, yeah, this is actually better than a fistful of dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I don't prefer a fistful of dollars over The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I don't. No, you know, it's, it's got a great beginning and great end. Is my s- <laughs> but yes, no, it's, it's well, it's it's a great trilogy overall, if you view it as a trilogy, of course. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, for those that don't know, which is probably just about everyone listening to this podcast, because this podcast has been mostly, mostly horror, definitely not exclusively horror. You know, we've done sci-fi, we've done action, done Bruce Lee, we've done <laughs> uh, weirdo Canadian sex comedies, like we've kind of yeah. done it all. In, yeah. in our own way but between you and me i'm the horror guy mm-hmm. and yet the western is actually probably my favorite film genre and it has been for a while I, I was into westerns before i was ever into horror movies for sure and for whatever reason i've always kind of leaned towards the spaghetti westerns i think spaghetti westerns you know the westerns from italy mm-hmm. oftentimes also from spain this for instance is like an italian west german spanish production i think i mean we think of it as an italian movie obviously because sergio leone most of the actors are italian though obviously clint eastwood isn't i think i lean towards those movies really because they kind of emphasize what i love most about the westerns mm-hmm. what i what i love about westerns is usually a great score which we've got ennio morricone i mean that's covered obviously we've got, we've got our bases covered for the entire dollars trilogy with that uh i love some beautiful cinematography these spaghetti westerns tend to have some fantastic 
shots of these like long landscape shots. Leone loves mixing the you know long scaling landscape shots with his like really intense close-ups that's like a hallmark of his Mm -hmm. and i also love the spaghetti western just like their larger than life kind of feel you know what i mean with like the characters specifically i guess yeah and they're also kind of um i would say i mean dare i say they're a little more flamboyant than their american counterparts they're a lot more violent for the most part i don't know if that's what you're getting at but well everything's louder bigger people are doing more exaggerated motions and i think that might be also because you know most of the actors in spaghetti westerns don't speak english yeah so they're relying on uh, movements and and these exaggerated mouths mm -hmm. you know yeah this is like the other italian films that we've done on here which has been hash for the honeymoon the mario bava film and um what was the other one? Oh, The House by the Cemetery, the one Josh and I talked about from Lucio Fulci. Spoilers, we've got an Italian film coming up next week from a <laughs> better filmmaker than Lucio Fulci, dare I say. But the the Italian movies at in this time period were usually in, international casts. They would get actors from, like, wherever, and everybody would speak their language, so they're, everybody's dubbed. Yeah. I think... Where A Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, For Few Dollars More, for, you know, that trilogy, I don't tend to notice it as much with a lot of the others. And a lot of that is just because Clint Eastwood is doing the dub for Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We don't have Edward Mannix in there, you know? Um, So it's like, (laughs) but also like just the, the connection there of like the same actor doing the dub like he understands how he delivered the line on set better than anybody else Mm -hmm. would so i i I tend to not talk much about acting in italian films from this period just because you're really talking about two things you're talking about the dub performer and you're talking about the actual actor Mm -hmm. but i i feel like i can talk about it at least with eastwood here yeah and i guess the same would go for lee van cleef in the in the later movies because uh, i think and uh, eli wallach in the good bad, the bad and the ugly the main three in that movie are all dubbing themselves oh they are i didn't even know that i didn't know he was dubbing himself well now yeah. you have me questioning myself and <laughs> i'm trying to think if i see well, eli wallach him. in anything else what is what does his voice sound like <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no he's in the ghost writer also known as the ghost a movie released did you say the ghost writer does he play not writer writer stays starts no it's it's the (laughs) it's the movie where pierce brosnan plays a fictional version of tony blair it's actually a really good movie it's but it's (laughs) but it's roman polanski you know pervert Uh, yeah and it's supposed to take place in new england but roman polanski can't legally enter the united states so it's like very clearly filmed somewhere in europe and it just looks wrong yeah (laughs) like it's supposed to be like uh, cape cod and it just does not look like cape cod uh good job polanski yeah, well, you, you know, you've, at the end of the day, you've got no one to blame but yourself, really. Well, yeah, especially, yes, yeah. I'm not, I won't even get into it, yes. No, we'll, we'll eventually, if we're doing Rosemary's Baby or Repulsion or something, we'll we'll have to talk about Roman Polanski, but let's, let's hold off on that conversation for now. <laughs> we also there might have to, to edit said. out a lot. <laughs> oh, we might, but we, but we might not. It depends how I feel. Now, dude, I want to tell you, I don't, so I know that, I mean, for anybody listening who doesn't know this, Patrick, you picked these movies ba- like you put them into like a random oh god i thought you were going to like accuse me of a roman plans no. for a second I'm like oh <laughs> no. god where's this who doesn't know this but yeah so you got these movies paired up by putting them into like a random number generator right yes and occasionally you do fudge the numbers but that's fine you know we'll look past that well, we're not supposed to admit that <clears throat> oh sorry sorry <clears throat> just that. kidding Redact no we, i did admit that with uh, with uh, silent night deadly night because we did one <laughs> a christmas episode so oh I that's did right yeah yeah that. yeah for christmas right 
But I don't know if you realize how perfect this matchup is before we even get into either of the movie. Because I just want to write something. I, I, have, wanna, I, I have a detail of why it's perfect that you might not know about. I don't know. We're having you take lead and enter the ninja, so it's possible you know this. Okay, well, here, I'm going gotta... to read you something I've written down. Okay. Okay, and maybe I think we're going to come together on this one. So All right. So this is about, um, uh, uh, what's it called? A, uh, a fistful of dollars first. Okay. okay. Directed by an Italian. Sure. Filmed in Spain, yes. starring Americans, Germans, Italians, and Spaniards. Okay. Fun fact, released in Italy in 64, released in Toronto in North America in 66, and then America in 67 along with the rest of the Dollars trilogy. Right. Uh, filmed on a budget of about $200,000, apparently. And I'm probably butchering this name, but I hope I'm not. Uh, and I'm sure you know this, but it's based on the Yojimbo. Yojimbo. Story. I've got something to say about that. In the past, when I mentioned I mentioned Kurosawa okay. when we talked about Godzilla, at the time I had never seen a Kurosawa movie. Since then, it was actually before I watched A Fistful of Dollars for this episode, I saw Yojimbo. Oh. And I did, it, it was kind of a coincidence because I, Yojimbo had been in my HBO Max watch list and it's like, okay, I'm going to watch that tonight. And then it's like, oh, wait, our next episode is A Fistful of Dollars awesome like you know but it actually but it actually turned out that you and i we record this way ahead of time and we didn't record an episode on a fistful of dollars for a a, a good amount of time so it's actually it's at this point it's been a while since i've seen yojimbo even though it will have been more recently than the last episode that we released was <laughs> recorded you know it's kind of a weird kind of thing but yojimbo's fantastic it really is i can't stress that enough it's an incredible movie if it's still on hbo max when this episode comes out for those of you listening go check it out you will not be disappointed i really want to check out yojimbo because i've heard nothing but good about it but i mean uh, it's a kurosawa film he's sort of if he's not the greatest film director of all time he's certainly up there with the David Dakotos and the Federico <laughs> Fellinis of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but the here... Golans. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. But here's the weird thing, right? So so let's just backtrack. We've got this movie directed by an Italian, filmed in Spain, starring Americans, Germans, Italians, et cetera, et cetera, right? Trying to look like an American, well, let's not say trying to look like, but kind of uh, uh, drawing inspiration from that American Western film, right. you know? And this is how it connects to Enter the Ninja. Are you ready? And I think I think this is where you got it. Like I, I think this is where you and I connect. Franco Nero stars in Enter the Ninja. He's he, Django. Exactly. He is Django. Okay, that's what I was going to say. I would have said role. it in about one sixtieth of the time. So thank you. Well, also get this. So also, <laughs> based on Yojimbo, right? Is Django based on Yojimbo? Allegedly. Allegedly. Okay. And Enter the Ninja was a production of many different peoples. <laughs> sure. <laughs> And everybody was dubbed over, pretty much everybody. Yeah, because, yeah, Franco Nero, obviously, he's yes. Italian guy. Although yeah. he is in Die Hard too. He has spoken English on yeah, maybe, film. Maybe he's picked up some English skills exactly, since then. Yeah. It was filmed in the Philippines, but supposed to be like mm-hmm. an American-esque action ninja movie. And also filmed on a small budget. So that's, that's really it. So well, I that, that kind of goes without saying yeah, with the, with the canon films. But yeah. but yeah, I think, I think you inadvertently picked two two movies that uh, uh, have almost the same kind of like base layer going yeah for well other. the Franco Nero one was the was the really exciting element because I, I I'm assuming you probably haven't seen Django Django is another spaghetti western classic obviously mm-hmm. the name has been I don't want to say tarnished but the the name Django <laughs> has been reclaimed by, or it's been claimed by uh, Quentin Tarantino and Jamie Foxx of course but 
as we all know, Tar- Tarantino doesn't do anything original, and he just sticks by his like homages to spaghetti, spaghetti westerns, and that's what Django and The Hateful Eight both kind of were. But yeah, yeah, the original film Django is really, really great. Yeah, I like a lot of spaghetti westerns. Django is another one outside the Dallas trilogy. I would really recommend. I would also recommend The Great Silence which is by the same director as Django. That's actually better than Django. It's it's one of the Sergios. It's uh, Is it Sergio Martino? <laughs> Sergio, I think it's Sergio Corbucci. It's not uh, Sergio it is. Leone. It it's, is, yeah. He's the second best spaghetti western Sergio out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, A Fistful of Dollars, released in 1964, directed by Sergio Leone, one of the great filmmakers, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, one of my favorites, probably my top five favorite film directors ever again i mean in all seriousness i'm not throwing david dakota in this top five you know he's up there with uh i'm, I'm a big hitchcock guy dario argento's up there uh alexander payne i like a lot but yeah no uh leone's great we get obviously music by ennio morricone this movie mm-hmm. really makes me wish i was better at whistling than i am you know what i mean <laughs> i know exactly what you mean yeah <laughs> Because we get that opening sequence, and it's it's a beautiful opening sequence, and it's got that music, the Fistful of Dollars theme, which has a lot of whistling to it, uh, and then the opening title sequence is kind of like, it's animated, but it's like, the style of animation is like very, I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of like... It felt like, really modern. Like, it felt it like felt, something it, that you would add to, like, a, the beginning of a movie, like the opening credits of a movie today, in a theater. I, in, in some sense, yes, but I also think... It's also very old-timey. It reminds me of, like, one of those, and I don't remember the names of these things, but these would have been around, like, in the time of the Old West, I think. I don't know. I'm not – I'm a 14th century guy. I'm, I, oh, you know, oh, I, oh, I'm a medievalist. About, uh, I don't know my 19th century too much. But, like, those wheel things that yes, you look yeah, through, yeah. it's just a series of photographs. That's what this kind of reminded me of. Yeah, now, see, I thought of uh, – um, Christ, what's it called? Casino Royale, the opening to that. I mean, like, it's not the same, but it's the same. Oh, it's sure, like, yeah. It's those yeah. very, I, like, uh, contrasting colors in the characters, the, the outlines of the characters on the on the screen. So anyways, the movie picks up in the, and I'm going to talk about, oh, a bit about locations here because I looked into this a while ago, but this movie's shot in the Tabernas Desert. Mm-hmm. It, this It's this region in Spain. I don't know Spanish geography, so I couldn't begin to tell you exactly where this is but the the tabernas desert i did look it up it looks beautiful by the way i think you'll agree oh absolutely yeah it's a popular location for spaghetti westerns because a lot of the even though they're italian westerns they were shot in spain mostly i'm sure because of the locations they just thought were better and they they thought imitated the american west a bit better than anything that italy has to offer um you know i I don't know how much spaghetti sauce was smeared across the streets in the american west (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but I actually like, looked into this the area where this movie was filmed, and it's a part of the Tabernas Desert that has like three. They call them theme parks. You know, we wouldn't really think of them as theme parks. It's not like Six Flags or, or like um, <laughs> like Disney World or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's closer to Disney World than Six Flags, but it, but they've got like a um, these like these like these are old like Western theme parks, right? Oh. And it's like you know you've you've kind of heard of that. I've I don't. I don't know if there's anyone like probably the nearest one to me would probably be, you know, shout out to Shoji Tabuchi. It's probably in like Branson, <laughs> Missouri or something like that. Um, it's because Branson's like that kind of old timey town. But they're like these things where you go there, you see like actors recreate 
like the old classic western standoff and stuff and, and you mm-hmm. ride horses and stuff the, there's three of these things in this area and they're all like resorts they offer like camping they've got pools oh my and God. but Are they're just we like should go in, and film an episode there or record an episode I there? I mean we <laughs> haven't filmed a single episode but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no they, these are like areas that I would 100% will love to go I they're probably kind of remote even within Spain you know, it, it, they're all, like, in the locations of where these movies were filmed. There's one that kept the main house from Once Upon a Time in the West, and that's, like, part of this theme park now. And Once Upon a Time in the West is, like, one of my all-time favorite movies. And, you know, Fistful of Dollars was filmed at, like, one of these things. A, a bunch of others, Django, was probably filmed there. And I just think that's really neat. And and I stumbled upon this because I was actually looking up, you know, whatever happened or where was the cemetery from the finale of The Good, The Mad, and The Ugly because that mm-hmm. – apparently there's a whole documentary about the lo- – that's, like, a really kind of interesting film location that – it was like the the headstones were all it was all like a set but they kind of got rid of that and that they had to like restore it to make it look like this like how it did in the movie oh wow. and i mean sorry to get off on a tangent on the good the bad and the ugly and on the tabernus desert in general but i'm just like these are places i would love to go to sad hill cemetery and the good the bad and the ugly that's probably my favorite scene in film history it's like my favorite film location ever i would love to go there oh yeah, it's gorgeous Well, speaking of gorgeous, in steps Clint Eastwood. He's (laughs) playing, obviously, I mean, he's the man with no name here. He does get referred to as Joe Mm -hmm. at one point. I think just one point, and it's, like, late in the movie, so I, I don't know what that was about. I, I kind of got the impression the guy was just, like, creating a name for him, just, like, yeah, didn't yeah, know yeah. his name, and it's like, hey, Joe, like, I don't know, like, you, the way you might say, like, Bud or something to somebody. Exactly. But he's the—I'll probably be referring to him as the stranger just because that's easier to say than the man with no name every time. <laughs> <laughs> but he's entering this—the outskirts of this one town— this is in Mexico. He's chilling by a well when he sees this young kid kind of making a scene, and then the kid gets like shot at by a bunch of these like <laughs> criminal guys. And you're yeah, like, like I mean, they're shooting like near him. They're not like trying to kill him. Yeah, they're trying to scare him away. And East was just watching, and he's thinking like, okay, what's up? So then the stranger enters into the town, and this is a town that it's it's a pretty hostile town. He's greeted by the um the the like the bell ringer guy. Uh, who's kind of a weird character. We don't get a lot from him. He, he meets the innkeeper who informs him that, you know, one, one of my favorite little uh, moments of this movie is like the innkeeper's talking to him. He's staying, well, he hasn't stayed at the inn yet, but the inn is completely empty because no one actually visits this town because the town is just like overrun with criminal gangs, right? And so people are dying left and right. But he's asking about like how tall is he how much does he weigh and the reason he's doing that is is because he just like flips open the door and there's the old prospector dude working on coffins and he's like he's really good at being able to tell someone's dimensions just by looking but like i love that that's such like a classic western kind of thing i love that and i i like that the uh coffin maker guy i like that character a lot he's just fun he's also the most awkwardly dubbed so, so that's yeah, part is. of why I like him. He's also in uh, one of the other Dollars Trilogy movies. I think it's for a few dollars more. 
okay, that would probably make sense because I've seen The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly the most, and I can't picture him in that, so that makes sense to me. I, there's an actor or two that's in, like, all three of them other than just Eastwood. I think there's... Chico. Think me, oh. The guy who plays Chico. The, the, the guy in Is this that movie Aldo... who gets the door smacked in the head and he gets Yes, in. yeah, the big guy. Yeah. The big guy, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I was going to who... say, I, I can picture him in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly because he's the guy who tortures um, Tuco at prison, I'm yes, pretty sure, yeah. or that, like, Confederate camp or whatever. Yeah, and even, um, I don't remember the actor's name, but the guy who plays, uh, oh, what is it? Is it Ramon? Ramon Rojo? Is is he the head brother? Well, which one, which brother's the head? Because the one we meet, we kind of think is the head, but then he's also not really. No, the one, the, the one, one where we meet, uh, I won't give too much away. The, the one we, There's Don Miguel. Don Miguel is the one who's, who he, we meet first and we kind of think he's in charge. The brother we meet the, last. The more hot-headed one. Yeah, that one. I, I have these names written down, but I'm not well, looking at my notes. I'm, got the MLB All-Star game on in the background. <laughs> I'm watching Freddie Freeman follow a ball off here. Well, the main brother, the one that we meet at the uh, uh, coach later on, he is also the bad guy in For a Few Dollars More. Yes. Yeah, so, that's right. So he plays the bad guy in this one and in the next movie directly after. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say because uh, Lee Van Cleef is like the bad guy in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and he's not a bad guy in For a Few Dollars More. So, again, more yeah. of like it's not really a trilogy. It's not <laughs> – a whole lot yeah. of continuity. I mean, you might even call if you it like a, be a lazy trilogy. <laughs> well, there, there's a term for it, right? Like, it's not an anthology so much, but it's like a... I think people refer to things like that as, like, spiritual trilogies or something oh, like yeah, that. Okay. There's a thematic trilogies. I can't remember the exact term. But, like, John Carpenter has the Apocalypse trilogy, which is The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and um, In the Mouth of Madness, I think. The, mm-hmm. Like, people... There's the... Uh, <laughs> there's a, <laughs> <laughs> Lucio Fulci has one of those too. It's like the the gates of I think it's the gates of death or the gates of gate. Well, gates of hell trilogy would make would would make sort of sense, but I think it's like called like the something of death because it's like oh yeah because other Lucio Fulci movies nobody dies in those. I mean, like it's just like I don't know. I think we've I think the house by the cemetery is one of the is part of that trilogy, but I, 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 I don't know. I mean. <laughs> I don't care that much about uh, those kinds of trilogies tend to. I like, I mean, I like the Dowie's trilogy just because I love them. And again, there's that through line of Eastwood and, and Leone and Ennio Morricone in all three. So, and Aldo Geoffrey or Joff, however you pronounce that game, that, that, that fat, fat guy in this movie, he's, he's in all three. Yeah. Chico. Well, let's just call him Chico. <laughs> Chico Marx appears in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. <laughs> So this town is run by two criminal gangs. We've got the Baxters, which I guess they're the—they never go into detail with this, but I guess they're the Americans, right? They're the white guys, even yes, though we've yeah. got one of the main Rojos is played by a German actor. So it's like, okay, a lot of, you know, there's white people <laughs> everywhere. But, but you, yeah, they never go into that because it's the Baxters and the Rojos. And Baxter, obviously, like an Anglo-Saxony type name. Mm-hmm. The stranger runs into the Baxters first, and they shoot at him. They scare off his mule, and I love that he's got a mule, not a horse. It's like uh, yeah, this kind of yeah. like pathetic <laughs> kind of animal. You know, he's like not cool <laughs> enough to have a horse. Except that's exactly what it's like. Yeah, I'm yeah, not cool exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you think of your if think of you you run into this guy think of if you're a baxter you're like oh what's this joker doing here you know like we can scare this guy off clint eastwood goes and confronts these guys and as he's going there he says my favorite line of the movie well it's sort of the setup to what's my favorite line of the movie he turns to the coffin maker and says get three coffins ready and then he goes up to those guys at the baxter compound 
and they're laughing at him and then he gets ultra serious and starts like kind of threatening him and then everyone like the the tone of the scene just change changes everyone the baxters all get like really serious and then eastwood pulls a gun they're all ready to pull guns on him of course and he kills them kills all four of them which is when when he goes back to the coffin maker he says my mistake four coffins (laughs) yeah and man i want to point out it is so cool in this movie whenever eastwood like rips his gun out of his holster and just fires from the hip you know by like smacking i actually wonder if that's truly eastwood or if that's like a stand-in for like those those kinds of things i've never heard that it's not but like i mean it could easily not be him right because i don't know i mean he's on the series rawhide he obviously did hundreds of westerns after this right Mm -hmm. he's 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 i'm sure at some point he became very good at drawing and flipping around a gun i don't you know i don't know though how easy that skill comes you know but but this scene's actually really interesting and this kind of um so eastwood obviously being an american working in this movie and he's he's an american who's like i guess you could maybe say he's a tv star but he's by no means an a-lister because he's on the series rawhide and he had been for a while but he kind of did this thing where he went to europe to make movies and ironically they that's what made him a huge star that these are the movies that made him an a-lister and it's usually the and we'll see with um oh well i guess it's not enter the ninja is not a european movie but i'm just going to mention christopher george because it's like a lot of the movies like that that's where like a-listers go when their career is done yes like um you know like christopher george is in pieces which is the spanish italian production and it's like okay christopher george was a big deal in like the early 70s the late 60s but what do you do now that you're in the early 80s you know you do enter the ninja and you do pieces (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and then he died because he died not long after pieces. Yeah, well, you know, too, um, and, and this whole uh, um, Dollars trilogy thing, like when I was looking into it, because as you mentioned, this was filmed in 64 and I believe also released in 64 in Italy and Europe. This Eat. movie was slammed in Italy, by the way. This was not well received. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, uh, the only thing I know about it is that the Toho Company in Japan, which is the production company for Yojimbo. They are the ones that kept it from being released in the exactly, U.S. Yes. Or, exactly. or maybe not the U.S., but the rest of the world. Yeah. Because well, Toho cause sued it, them. And they won. And then, Yeah. And good for them because, like, honestly, yeah, they Kurosawa and, well, it's probably not Kurosawa. A few weeks from now, we'll be doing our next Godzilla movie. And uh, so I was talking with our co-host of that because i've already recorded that episode and he was telling me about the japanese studio system at that time was a lot like the early hollywood studio system where like you sign contracts with studios and so it's like it's it's the studios basically owned kurosawa toho basically owned kurosawa so i'm, I'm sure kurosawa probably didn't see anything from that lawsuit but toho did so i guess good for them hey uh we're getting hail here Alright. And uh, <clears throat> it's definitely picking up on my mic, and I don't think there's any way I can soften this out. We can keep on going and see how it turns out, or we can... Oh, I don't know. Oh, my God. Uh, it almost looks like we're going to have a tornado. Uh, uh, we got to keep recording. We got we to gotta, we gotta document this. It's like those found yeah. footage movies. Like, well, why on. are you still recording when, yeah, when you're about to like, die? I think there's a transformer in my neighborhood that just... That just went up. Oh my god! Because but there's sparks. Like in a there. like a Chevy that turned into a robot. Yeah, like yeah that kind of transformer. No, like an actual like phone transformer. Because there's sparks in the sky on the horizon. So I don't know what's All going right. on. Ladies and Whoa. gentlemen, I might die tonight, but that's okay. This podcast is more important to me. That's yeah, and uh, well, I mean, it's more important to me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> but anyways, 
what I was going to say, what I was going to say about this scene is that the way this is shot is really interesting, and this was kind of something that Eastwood, as an American working in Italy, apparently didn't really get. He didn't really understand what Leone was doing, because how Leone was shooting this kind of scene, because this is the first gunplay we see in the movie, and it's shot from Eastwood's hip, and so you're seeing, you're, you're not seeing Eastwood's face, but you're seeing him pull out the gun, and you're seeing the other people get shot, but basically, American television movies, y- you have two shots for if someone's shooting in, like, a western. You have the guy pulling his gun, and you see him, you know, in f- facing the camera, and then you have the shot of the guy getting shot. Now, think of, like, Stagecoach, the classic scene where John Wayne pulls out his Winchester rifle, drops to the ground, and it's like, okay, we're seeing all that. You can't even really imagine that kind of action done with this, where the camera is placed here. Yeah, and and the the great thing about where the camera is placed is you get that kind of brutal result of that, like the the brutal outcome of that action, where you actually you're closer to the ground and you see the people hit the ground and the dust come up, you know, and they stop yeah, moving. I think They're it's dead. I think it's genius. I think it's it makes other kind of older movies seem so stale mm-hmm. because it's just so much more creative and it's so so more interest just visually appealing to look at. Oh yeah, I for really sure. like Sergio Leone was a genius with the camera, as is really a, a theme with all of the Italian filmmakers we're talking about. Whether it's Mario Bava, whether it's I actually didn't have that much to say positively about the cinematography in the House by the Cemetery with Lucio Fulci, but generally speaking, Lucio Fulci absolutely knew how to shoot a movie next week we're doing an argento movie like spoilers he's just about as good as leone like i don't know what what's in the water in italy <laughs> other than <laughs> reserve pasta water i don't know but hey, like, these guys are really good it, like i they just shoot things in different ways than americans did back then and i mean nowadays you you see Obviously, you can shoot something however the hell you want nowadays, and and you have all this like people like you know Tarantino taking influence from these kinds of Italian things. We've had a lot of filmmakers at this point, horror filmmakers, who have taken influence not just from like the John Carpenters and those kinds of Americans, but from Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci and like guys like. Uh, I mean, I, I'll I guess I'm going to talk about the two directors that I always go back to to make fun of, but Tarantino and Eli Roth, I guess, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the stranger gets this brilliant idea now that he understands how this town is run, that there's the Baxters and the Rojos. And he basically has this idea to, to basically start a gang war because they're kind of at they're not at peace, but they're at like things are at a decent a decent point of like, you know, nothing's about to go off at the moment. But obviously, this guy who is not working for the Rojos has just killed four of the Baxters. So then he goes to the Rojos and says, hey, let me work for you. Look what I just did. And they kind of, they hire him. But yeah. right off the bat, Don Miguel is like, I don't feel great about this guy. Like, I'm, I'm, like Don Miguel is, is clearly the most, like, uh, sensible of the Rojos. He's the least hot-headed and I mention this because there's kind of a Romeo and Juliet vibe here with the Capulets and the Montagues. He's kind of the Benvolio of the of the uh, of the film, whereas the other Rojo, again, whose name I, you and I couldn't remember, he is straight up. Uh, he is straight up Tybalt, you know. <laughs> yeah, and dude, it, 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 that's the one that has shoe polish on his face, right? Tybalt. No, the uh, that. <laughs> I was gonna. Uh, no, you're thinking of Othello. <laughs> No, that uh, that <laughs> Lawrence Olivier as a fellow. Oh, oh no! no. <laughs> but yeah, no, I yeah, the West German guy. Yes, yeah. Hey, I thought it was a convincing tan. I, he just looks very sweaty. 
which everyone <laughs> looks sweaty and everyone looks sweaty in this mo- in, in these movies and I love that. I, I I like the what I really like about the spaghetti westerns is that they're very stylized. Like how they're shot, they're really kind of interesting. They do some things musically that just American films wouldn't do. And yet they're still really gritty too. It's not like nowadays when you have like a highly stylized kind of thing, it's like I hate to go back to Tarantino again, but like think of Django because that does Django at least to me did not feel like it was set in the real world. It felt like no. it was you know a Tarantino kind of thing. No, and then but, obviously you have like the highly stylized of like uh, Wes Anderson, who's like mm-hmm. his films are like story, you know picture books. Those aren't those those those, those are, that's not reality, and it's yeah. not meant to be, but. There's this character of Marisol. Mar- Marisol. I, I struggle pronouncing yeah, she's German Spanish lady. names. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say she's not. Yeah, she, she's not Mexican. I don't know if anyone in this movie actually is Mexican. I, there's a lot of Spaniards, I'm sure, but I don't know about Mexican. But <laughs> she, I actually really like what the movie does with her. She Eastwood notices her, and he like t- takes an interest in her, but then finds out that, that Ramon loves her. And then Ramon is the one they're talking about. Everybody's talking about, oh, he's powerful, he's kind of scary, and he may or may not be the leader. We're, we're going kind of back and forth on that, you and I. But we eventually learn, and this isn't for a while, but Marisol is basically held captive by Ramon. Ramon is a freaking prick. He's, he's he's a horrible, horrible character. We don't know this for a while. Mm-hmm. But the first time we meet him, we, he is running this um, operation pinning the American military against the Mexican military. Or I guess really, I mean, I guess it's not quite that. He's he's murdering, he's disguising himself as American military to murder Mexican military and therefore frame the American military, I guess, is really what that is. But that's yes. an interesting scene. That's a super violent scene. That kind of thing, like, because that's a Gatling gun, right? Yes, it is, yeah. Well, yeah, well, he's disguising himself as what? A, a, a Confederate soldier? Confederate? No. It's, I thought that was it. Oh, because so. we're in the gray. Because he's wearing the gray uniform, right? And was he gray? I thought there was just, like, dust. I don't oh, know. I'd have to it. see it. Maybe. I, th- I think it's just dust, but yeah. Oh, man. Did you hear that thunder? No. Oh, my goodness. It was, maybe it was a Gatling gun. <laughs> oh and the the gatling gun actually reminds me of something so this movie and just to kind of tell you and, and i mean this makes sense to me is that this movie's made by a bunch of italians and you know some spaniards and stuff and they didn't know shit about the old west which no, you know absolutely not i mean i don't blame them but and maybe this is something because uh, spoilers menahem golan doesn't un- understand anything about feudal japan either you know <laughs> <laughs> like so maybe this is another connection with these two movies <laughs> But apparently Eastwood actually kind of helped make this movie look more authentic because he gets on set and they're wearing like coonskin caps and stuff like that. And oh Eastwood's like, hang on, wait a second, guys. That's that's like 1830s frontier. This That's not like 1860s, 1870s, like whenever this is. He's like, you guys better clean that shit up. So, so uh, because I, uh, like the costumes that and stuff like it feels classic Western. I mean, it, it doesn't end up having any different of a look than, like, an American film at this time would have had. But apparently it almost looked dramatically different, and we have Eastwood to thank there. So after the shootout with the Ramon leading the fake American army against the real Mexican army, in the whole, I guess we didn't say this, but the whole shootout was to steal a bunch of stuff that the Mexican had. Was it gold? Was it uh, guns? 
It was gold. No. Yeah, gold. Yeah, I mean, gold. they probably took the guy's guns too, but yeah, they they made it look like the Americans did it, which <laughs> they made it look like a, a real Guantanamo Bay kind of thing. It's like it's not like America doesn't have this his, history of doing stuff like this in Latin America. Let's be honest. <laughs> I don't know if Sergio Leone is doing some uh, social comedy. This is right after the Bay of Pigs, basically. 64, right? Bay of Pigs wow. is like 62? Let's 62, do a sociopolitical reading of, uh, of A Fistful yeah. of Dollars. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but this is, right, this is also not long after Kennedy died, so maybe there's a secret Kennedy. Johnson really did it <laughs> message in here somewhere, too. After this shootout... Don Miguel introduces the stranger to Ramon, and obviously he recognizes Ramon. He's like, oh, yeah, you're, you, that was the dude that did the thing. And Ramon also doesn't really like him. They're, they're, everybody's kind of threatened by this stranger. And I'm going to say I don't blame them. Clint Eastwood, when he's doing his man with no name thing, is basically the coolest person ever to the point where, like, if you're around him, you feel insufficient you you feel like like he's just hogging all of the cool yeah you should feel like a loser if you're around him and you're not him yeah i I, (laughs) yes going back to the scene where he shoots the baxters when he just like when they're laughing he's just able to like one line just like shut them up and it's so cool and it's like it doesn't feel fake that kind of thing could in a film look and feel kind of fake but like eastwood just he he doesn't say a whole lot but like when he says stuff like he he means it you know and he's oh, got this sure. kind of wit about him obviously like he's the man with no name is probably my favorite character in film history uh he's just so awesome he's like uh the, the appeal of the dollars trilogy or one of them because again beautiful cinematography incredible soundtrack but one of the biggest appeals is that basically these movies are all about and I talk about the, like it's the trilogy as if it's a trilogy. I think there's there's not necessarily continuity in terms of story, but I think the character very much feels like the same character in all three movies with the man with no name character. These these movies are all about putting this character, this ma- man with no name character in these situations where it's just like, oh, you know, what's he going to do? And yet he it's like his Eastwood's biggest strength in these movies is like his confidence. He always, like, knows he's going to figure things out, even when he's being tortured or, you know, he's being held captive. Like, he's, he always figures out what he's going to do. And he he's not all that concerned with, like, morality. He does end up doing the right thing in a very, you know, specific and meaningful way, at, at least in one instance in this movie. But, like, it's never about morality. It's more—it's it's self-interest, but it's, like, self-interest that recognizes that, like, certain people who aren't involved shouldn't have to suffer— if that makes sense, that's kind of his like moral code. If there is one, yeah, it's almost like a, it's almost like he has a cowboy moral code because in one one scene after, um, oh gee, where would you get that idea? Oh my god, I mean, no, I mean. but there's that one scene early on after um, after we meet. I'm Ramon. a cowboy <laughs> on a steel horse. I ride. I hate that. Oh song yeah, so much. riding that horse. Pancho um. Visa. Fraud. I hate that guy. <laughs> a hack fraud. No, the, there's that scene after we meet Ramon, and uh, Ramon says, hey, we don't want the help of Clint Eastwood anymore. We don't need your help. We're going to be friends with the Baxters. And Clint oh, yeah, Eastwood he overhears turns, them. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood turns and gives the money back to Don yeah, Miguel. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And he says, hey, here's your money back. He goes, I've only taken a few bucks to pay for my room and food. He goes, well, why are you giving it back? He goes, well, I don't feel like I deserve it because I haven't really earned it. 
And then, and then, but you kind of think it's his plan all along to eventually just work for the Baxters, right? Because he, he feeds the Baxters insider information about the Rojos, and he eventually, the the kind of the turning point where he really gets these gangs to kind of duke it out is he stages, I'm going to say stages a crime scene. Okay, so what he does is <laughs> yeah. he and his innkeeper buddy take a couple of the bodies, a couple of the, the soldiers' bodies, and put them up in a cemetery— and and he tells both gangs that they're there, and he tells the Rojos gang because Ramon is going to want to like cover his tracks and kill those guys so that they can't talk to anybody. And and he tells the Baxters because he's like the Baxters don't even know about this whole heist thing. And he's like, here, go to the cemetery, you'll be able to find them. And then after, so basically, the entire town is cleared out because all these gangsters are. are riding as fast as they can for the cemetery then he just kind of sneaks around in the house in the uh (laughs) rojo house i i gotta be perfectly honest i don't know his plan here he knocks out chico he hits him with the door as you've mentioned a number of times yeah (laughs) he's just kind of sneaking around I i don't know if he's trying to steal anything just find information to like feed or sell to the baxters it's probably that but he ends up accidentally punching mary saul and i think it's an accident because you see his reaction i don't think he meant to i think he just threw a punch because he, someone was coming and and then but th- but then it's like oh wait it's mary saul i can use this and so he <laughs> so he brings her to the baxters and the baxters basically do a prisoner exchange like we'll give you mary saul and you'll give us because they have the rojos have one of the baxters sons one of the yeah. main family well, guys. It's also bizarre because it's like everything just works out for Clint Eastwood. When he snuck into the it's that house, supreme confidence I was talking about. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's the sometime. ultimate superpower, at least for this <laughs> character, it is. Well, going back to when he was sneaking around the Rojo house, I thought he was there looking for the gold that they took from the oh, massacre yeah, at the river. Yeah, that would make sense. But then, you're right, he's just kind of like hanging out, and then he finds some bags of gold, and he picks him up and you're right he knocks out marisol but as he picks her up the rojos ride back and he yeah. tiptoes her over to the baxter house and then that's when you realize or we the audience realize and i'm sure clint eastwood realized they have th- that the rojos have one of the baxters so it's almost like it's just he was just supremely lucky you know yeah yeah that i know you're right i mean it's it's like uh i think that's fair i think if we're going to have complaints about this movie and i i really love this and i kind of love how this plays out with this character but there is a like a a luck factor and there's like kind of a there's a bit of a lack of suspense i think the movie gets very suspenseful towards the end because it does get pretty unpredictable but there is this what i was talking about earlier with the eastwood the the stranger's confidence there is kind of the confidence with the audience too where you after you've seen this guy in a few situations you kind of lose the sense uh, you kind of lose the ability to feel like something bad is actually going to happen to him yes you regain that later on when he's when he's taken captive and he's beaten to shit i I think it comes back in a big way or or rather it leaves i I do think the movie kind of makes that turn so it's it's sometime after this prisoner exchange where this is like an emotional exchange here. This is where we meet, see that kid again, the kid that, and I believe that was Chico shooting at him earlier. I think but so, that, yeah. But that kid is Marisol's son, and we learn that that boy's father is not in the picture, and it's not because of, like, divorce or anything. It's because Ramon wanted Marisol and didn't like that this other guy had him, so he basically um, just arranged it because he has so much power that this guy is like 
being held captive now because he like not even framed him he just like falsely accused him of like cheating at cards or something like that and yeah so this is when we when we really learn that Ramon is just this asshole and this is also where we really start to feel for Marisol even though she's you know a German woman playing a Mexican but (laughs) but also like in Spain she barely says anything in this movie she has like a few lines as it she's one of the sort of one of the most important characters and she barely says anything and I think that's very much by design I think that's because you know we can talk about oh this movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test right because she's like the only female character in it so obviously she doesn't talk to another female and she barely talks at all but I think the movie at least with that character is very much highlighting how little power she has because of this freaking asshole named Ramon and I like oh, that sure. a lot. I, th- I think that's maybe powerful is not the right word, but it, but it's kind of an interesting thing to include in this movie. And, and there's this kind of the spaghetti westerns as opposed to like the American westerns. They tend to be a bit more, I'll say morally gray. Some might say revisionist, you know, whatever. The, the revisionist western I think is a very specific thing, so I'm not going to make that claim necessarily. The classic American western is very black and white. It's good and bad. Mm-hmm. And then obviously with the spaghetti westerns, there's an ugly there. <laughs> get it? I get it. <laughs> and 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 that's that's why there is such a thing as the revisionist western. It's because you had decades and decades of this genre being largely one thing telling different variations on mostly the same stories and then when you like years later when you look back at that and you kind of realize these movies were kind of messed up these were a a lot of these movies were about slaughtering indians and you Mm -hmm. know all all that stuff and and that's why you have movies like dances with wolves which is like trying to correct like 50 years of hollywood mistreatment of native americans and you get movies like unforgiven Clint Eastwood starring and directing in again another one of my favorite films of all time very much trying to like look at like okay in the past westerns like you can kill people without consequences let's really kind of put flip that on its head and like everything has consequences that's very much what that movie's about and I think you you do see a little bit of that in the spaghetti westerns at least a tiny bit once upon a time in the west does it better at least of, of the Leone movies I think that's probably the closest thing to being a true revisionist western there's like four main characters in that movie and one of them's a woman and I th- the movie at least with her is very much about how the men around her are trying to control her and they they don't know what to do with this woman who has this power and wealth in a world where women largely don't have that kind of thing but anyways that's once upon a time in the west it's interesting too because i was going to take us back to um a fistful of dollars here it's interesting that marisol is juxtaposed with um, Baxter's wife. Yes, who is yeah, because like, she's powerful... really the only fe- other female character. Yeah. yeah, she's rich, she's powerful, and like mm-hmm. she's constantly telling her husband and her son what to do. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that, but you're right. She's the, you know, to use an expression that I don't think is really relevant to the 19th century, she's the one that wears the pants in the relationship, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm pretty yeah. sure she's wearing a dress. Yeah, I think there's some interesting things with the women in this in this movie. I mean, it's not it's not the focus of the movie by any by any means, but the the bits of morality we do get from the stranger are with Marisol because he eventually takes whether it's just pity or if it's just a genuine desire to do good or I mean 
there's another option. He could just hate Ramon that much, and that's why he does what he does with Martin. So it could just become that. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's certainly interesting. And the first time watching A Fistful of Dollars, I thought kind of along the lines of what you were saying. Like, I, I thought Clint Eastwood took pity on her, and he's like, oh, you know, this is sad. This is a sad thing. But also deep down, he really is a good guy. He is the anti-hero. Uh, emphasis on the anti part or the— Well, I emphasis guess. on the hero, it sounds like you're saying— well, I guess you're right. Maybe emphasis on both. Emphasis on it all. I don't know. Well, I, I think at the end of the day, what The Stranger's doing in this movie is he's okay with violence. He's okay with people dying as long as the people that are committing the violence or falling victims to it are, like, the bad guys. And there's an argument, you know, the, even the Rojos, Ramon is the worst character in this movie. The Baxters aren't good, you know? So so I, th- I think he sees Marisol as just this person that's sort of like him, kind of stuck in the middle of the of this war. But the problem is, or the difference is, that he can do something about his situation. She cannot. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. You're very right. Because eventually he frees Marisol and her husband and their stupid kid, and <laughs> he sends them on their merry way. They ride out to the Tabernas Desert. But then he's caught, of course. The Rojos figure out about this. He He's trying to get away, but they catch him, and they torture him. They beat him. A lot of that's Chico, because Chico's this fat, big, heavy, <laughs> strong guy. And a lot of that's Ramon. And, I mean, it's they all get in on it. And Eastwood is, you know, he's really beaten up. He's got some blood. No, again, this... I mention the blood here because this is famously in the old classic westerns especially because so many of those came out in the 50s or earlier you never see blood in those things a lot of them are black and white too it's like with the spaghetti westerns especially in color like you can kind of emphasize it that i mean th- this is not a bloody movie by today's standards this is we're not watching evil dead 2 i'm just saying it's, <laughs> it's a bit more than high noon you know yes yeah well yeah, and it, it's really—it's almost a tough thing to watch. I mean, well, it is a tough thing to watch because yeah, this scene is really kind gets of roughed brutal. up. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, yeah. and you just feel bad for him, you know? It, yeah, it reminds me of there's the, I mentioned earlier again. It's also the Chico actor beating up on um, Eli Wallach in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. That scene gets pretty brutal. That scene's uncomfortable, yeah. and the whole like it's that's even more disturbing too because it's while those captive soldiers are all singing that song and it's just like really disturbing because of that yeah and i will say before we get too far one of my favorite scenes in this movie happens right before the stranger gets beat up and that's when he rides out to that house that has all those guys in it oh I, i know where you're going with this you're going with the little machete thing well, yeah, all of that. That whole scene when he comes yeah. in and just blows yeah, them I, all I, away. I blew by that scene. I shouldn't have. That's a yeah, fun scene. It's so awesome. And then you're right. Then the machete throw, it was awesome. And the look he gives in the direction of the camera after he kills the guy, like he's got that cheroot hanging out of his mouth. He just looks so great. Mm-hmm. So yeah. great. And that's that's the one scene. That's one of Marisol's probably like three or four lines in this movie. But, she, but that's like the one moment where Eastwood actually, you know, the stranger – isn't fully in control he he shoots some people and he thinks he's got the situation handled but there's actually a guy behind him that's alive and it's marisol that warns him and then and that enables him to just turn and flip his machete and throw it right into him it's great oh it was awesome it's so great and then even the whole um like after he frees her and uh, and her family that whole um ride back to Rojo house just like it's so intense watching him ride against like this group of like five people on all on horseback and he's ducking mm-hmm. in and out of like in behind hills and these small canyons yeah. and stuff coolies and we've got the say. classic Morricone score of course 
Yeah, and there's just dust getting kicked up behind the horses. It just looks so cool. It's so intense. I just loved it. So, considering the stranger will not give any information on where he sent Marisol to, in in reality, he told her to head towards the border because, you know, America is welcoming to immigrants in in this film. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They held him captive, but then he has this, like, weird thing where in order to escape... It, this is kind of weird, but it's kind of great too. Is like he has this. There's this barrel. There's this big barrel. Does it hold gunpowder? I assume it does. It explodes. Wait, it, it. But it appears to hold nothing in the movie. Yeah, but... uh, when it, it when it actually explodes, it looks like it it holds nothing, and it just explodes <laughs> because it has so much velocity and it hits the <laughs> guys yeah. with such force. But he rolls it down the little um, the little ramp thing, and he hits Chico. And I think some other guys there too. So Chico yeah. screams while this barrel blows up in his face and kills him. Uh, it's uh, great. It's great. And then this is back to like, okay, maybe he is in control of these things now. He's back. He's back, baby. <laughs> and the stranger escapes the Rojo compound and he hides out. And he hides out not with the innkeeper, but with the old coffin maker, the coffin maker, the old prospector looking guy. Mm-hmm. But while this is all going on, you know, the Rojos are like, okay, who did this? They interrogate the the innkeeper. They beat him. They kill, like, all of the Baxters. They just start that house on fire. They Dude, shoot that, everybody. That's a brutal scene, too. It is, yeah. Very and, brutal. and he's actually, he's not with the coffin maker at that point. He's hiding just under the inn. He's, like, no, under he, the little... Um, yeah, well... I, at the point that all the Baxters start getting massacred is when he's on the back of the coffin maker's cart. Oh, you're the right. Coffin you're right. hiding in it. You're right. Yeah. In the presumably months following that, the stranger is like regaining his strength, and I like this that he's he's not just like immediately healthy. You can tell that he's like preparing. He's he's really trying to get himself back into shape mm-hmm. because he, I mean he was beaten badly. Like he has to he crawls out of the Rojo house. It's not like he just gets up and runs. So this is another like the the consequences of the violence are really shown here. But he also importantly, fans of Back to the Future Part Two or three, I guess, technically. We'll get a kick out of this, of course. But he discovers the powers of the anti-bullet powers of, of a certain <laughs> metal thing. Yeah. And, and he ends up shaping, of course, a bulletproof vest out of that. It's when the innkeeper is being tortured outside that the stranger finally comes back to face the Rojos. And it's, it's, again, it's kind of brutal. The guy's being, like, strung up by his, like, wrists, and he's, like, hanging. And it looks horrifically painful, and it's, like, the actor's really in that situation. So I, I don't know if they—I can't imagine. You, I mean, you've got to cut the camera and give that guy a break, like, every 90 seconds or so, probably. Yeah, I would but hope then so. again, Italian, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. It's an <laughs> Italian movie. <laughs> like, Italian, those Italian filmmakers, they're out there just killing wildlife all over the Amazon cannibal movies. Who knows what they're doing to actors? This, too, I, I didn't mention there is a setup for this final confrontation because it's Ramon. It's Ramon and his men, but there's Ramon in the center, and there's obviously the stranger. But the stranger had this conversation at this little Ramon party where there's this, like, knight armor in the, in the house, this old Spanish knight probably. Ramon was talking about how he doesn't like pistols. He likes his Winchester rifle because it's way more accurate. It's more powerful. And he was talking about how, like, you always have to aim for the the heart. And that's why, like, this 
knight has like indentations all around like the the breastplate area where like where the heart would be because he he just shoots it for practice and stuff. And so the stranger, he's just kind of like walking at him and Ramon keeps shooting him. He shoots him repeatedly, but he keeps getting up. And and each time he like spends less time on the ground, right? Because like first time yeah. he shoots him, he he goes down and all the guys all the rojos are kind of like, "Huh, yeah, we got him." And then they're also probably thinking, "Well, that was anticlimactic." <laughs> but then he gets up and he keeps and he keeps taunting them. He yeah. keeps taunting. He's like, "Aim for the heart." He's like, "You're you've lost your you've lost your step, Ramon. Like, you should be able to hit my heart." And yeah, the reason yeah. he's doing that, obviously, I mean, Ramon should see this coming, but it's it's great too because it's like he's playing off of Ramon's overconfidence mm-hmm. in his own abilities. Well, in this case, not overconfidence. He's hitting him. <laughs> he's hitting him exactly where he's aiming. But he knows. He understands Ramon. He understands what he's going to do, and that's why he's got that bulletproof vest thing. It's perfect. It's beautiful. That whole scene is just awesome because Clint Eastwood, sorry, the stranger. I keep forgetting to call him the stranger. I've called him Eastwood. It's fine. Eastwood stranger. Don't call him John Wayne. (laughs) Howdy, pilgrims. Aim for the heart, Ramon. (laughs) Oh, he'd be terrible in that. No, uh, the stranger shows up in like a big cloud of dust because what he does is he has he's There's, given this dynamite yeah. by the coffin maker. <laughs> That's right, I didn't mention that. Oh yeah. man, and that's like the coolest entrance ever. I know, and he sets it off outside of town, and everybody's like, "What? What was that?" And then all this dust is swirling around the town, and then next thing you know, out of this cloud so of dust, good. the stranger is just standing there, and you're like, "Wow, this is this is awesome." You know, he just appeared like a ghost. You know. Yeah, there is like this, especially, I mean, too, uh, like he's, I'm not going to say he's like a ghostly figure overall, like this, mm, this yeah. stranger character, but to Ramon at this point he is. And when he keeps shooting him and he doesn't die, like, what? <laughs> I mean, he is basically a ghost. He's like, he's like this invincible, like inhuman thing to him. And, and it's great. And it's like, it's his intimidation factor. Again, it's like the confidence that the stranger has. He, like, he knows how to defeat Ramon and it's to get Ramon basically questioning his own sanity in in this scene it's great yeah it's it's just and then even the path that the stranger takes he gets shot near like a building and then he kind of cuts right across our field of view Mm -hmm. as he's getting peppered by Ramon and he's slowly and he's over by those his, barrels yeah or boxes slowly or whatever making his way over to Silvanito who he then cuts down and then he kind of explains. Well, he shoots him down. He shoots the rope. You're right. Yeah, you're right. He shoots him down. Yeah, the whole thing is just great. I mean, and he and the whole time the stranger is just getting closer and closer and closer to the camera. You know, like he, he's he's I, I can't even explain it because I can't do it justice. But he just looks so cool. Just that long, slow approach, getting closer and closer, getting shot and standing back up and taunting him. It's really like you're coming to this really exciting head. You know. So, eventually, the stranger draws his pistols, or his pistol, rather, and shoots everyone but Ramon. Well, he actually, he shoots the gun out of Ramon's hand, Mm -hmm. but he shoots everyone else, so it's just him and Ramon. And then they've got this little, like, uh, additional kind of challenge to the standoff where, you know, because his gun's down, the stranger sets his gun down, and he's going to put a bullet in it because he's out of ammo. So is Ramon in this case. They have to see who's going to put the bullet in first and be able to draw quicker. And obviously, the guy with the pistol has the advantage here. Well, I shouldn't say obviously. I mean, it's a revolver. Like, it's, it's, it's not exactly an easy task. You, you still have to kind of be on point. But he beats him to it, and he points the gun at him. Like, the gun's already, like, pointed at Ramon by the time, like, Ramon has the bullet in. But Ramon still goes for it and gets shot. And 
is shot right against the well. And the stranger is victorious, but oh wait, we've got another Rojo up in the little window there. But he's thankfully shot down by the innkeeper, who you mentioned his name was Silvanito. You know, just so I guess this is the second moment where the stranger isn't fully in control, basically, where he kind of needs his ass uh, saved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I'm not sure why that was added into. Oh, I think it's just a little it's it's a fun little postscript kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like, hey, you got my back. I've got yours. Don't you forget it or something. Yeah, that's what it is. It's like it's there's a Forrest Gump effect here where. (laughs) Every, <laughs> let me explain. Is that, oh. No, 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 no. <laughs> this movie is not just boomer porn. There is, <laughs> but there is a there is a Forrest Gump element in the sense that like everybody who the stranger comes in contact with, I'm going to say with the exception of the ones who who he kills, which is most of them, he changes their life for the good, right? Marisol, yeah. Marisol's husband, Marisol's kid, Silvanito, I guess the coffin maker, maybe not as much, but it's, so it's like, of course, Marisol and. Silvanito would like to like help him out and Silvanito because at this point Silvanito's got as much against the Rojos as the stranger does so it's like it's it's maybe even less about saving the stranger as just like you know f those guys <laughs> you know if you're yeah, Silvanito yeah. so then we kind of conclude with the stranger leaves he has his kind of final words with Silvanito and the coffin maker and then he just kind of heads out because he realizes like hey there's nothing more for me to do in this town I've murdered everyone. <laughs> you know, I've got to go meet up with Lee Van Cleef, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know if we mentioned this. It's called A Fistful of Dollars because that's what drives Clint Eastwood's character in this movie. Uh, he shows up to mm-hmm. this, to what is essentially a ghost town. Uh, he gets a room at the inn with Silvanito. He gets some food and he goes, hey, I can't pay it, but I will be able to. And then that's when he asks right. Silvanito, hey, who, like, who's running this town? And then, then we get the whole backstory mm-hmm. of yeah. the fighting families. And Clint Eastwood's just looking to get paid here, you know? And and his his want of money just kind of spawns this whole story. And that's the same with the other two movies in uh, in the trilogy, in the Dollars trilogy. Yeah, there's also, like, an element here where, like, yeah, he shows, again, going, like, what I love about the man with no name as a character, the stranger Joe, you know, whatever you want to call him, <laughs> he's just, like, we have no idea why he's in town. We have no idea what the hell he's doing. But he, but then he, we find out that he doesn't have any money. So it's like, okay, he's gonna work for these gangs. And then he finds out that hey, he can win. He can get more money by having these gangs fight each other and just kind of <laughs> using them against each other. But there's also kind of like a, what really was he doing here in the first place? It almost kind of feels like he he already knew about this town and was like planning on doing this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. But like, I I like to prefer or like. I prefer to think that it was just him riding up to a town, like a, as a cowboy is wont yeah. to do. Yeah, oh, like know? as a random thing, and that's yeah. that's the um. Uh, I I was talking about the I've talked had this kind of conversation with a couple different people, but I have a good friend of mine from, you know, where I got my masters is a big fan of Asian cinema, and a lot of classic westerns are remakes of Japanese samurai films. It's not just this movie in Yojimbo and maybe Django and Yojimbo. But obviously, The Magnificent Seven is a remake of The Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's other examples, but there's like this weird kind of connection with the uh, with with between like Japanese samurai and like the Western kind of cowboy kind of thing. And it's it's weird too because it's like you'd think if there's a Western 
Western, not in the genre sense, but like Western is like a cultural, like American, English, French, whatever. Um, if there's like a Western cultural co- connection with the samurai, you'd think it'd be like the medieval knight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah right? right. Because you know, because that's what. Except, I guess the the real the real thing, I guess, that ultimately connects the 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 Western and and the samurai is is the idea of the Ronin, which is something that I can't explain all that well because I'm, we'll get into this with Enter the Ninja. But like, I'm not an expert on Japanese culture, folks. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> but like, there's the Ronin is like this. Um, it's the samurai that doesn't serve a lord. He's like an independent kind of thing, and that is very. There's no, at least that I'm aware of. And again, I'm a medievalist. There's not like a big medieval kind of connection there. And then so it's like, okay, I see where you get like the classic Western drifter, you know, in the in the old West, the kind of the outlaw yeah. thing. I I do see the connection there. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting that that you know there's this connection there because Yojimbo Yojimbo follows the film follows you know the classic example of the Ronin kind of thing and and yeah there I mean there's obviously similar movies this movie is a remake it's not like a Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake or anything but I mean it's it's the same story absolutely so Jim what did you think of a fistful of dollars um I hated it uh, I don't ever want to watch it again terrible. Uh, no, it was fantastic. Obviously, it's a it's a great movie. As I said at the beginning, it's my favorite of the Dollars trilogy. I still, yeah. I'm I'm glad we're not doing this in person because I might punch you in the face. Dude, go right ahead. I don't. Not care. that I dislike this movie, <laughs> but like the good, the bad, and the ugly is just so good. I mean, come on. Well, you know, when we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in the future, I I will I will tell you why I'm not the biggest fan of it. I do like it more than. Uh, for a few dollars more, though, for sure. Yeah, it, this is just fantastic. I love how kind of self-contained this cowboy story is, this Western. It, it just makes everything so... I, I don't know. It, it just makes for such a great story, I think. And Clint Eastwood plays the part of the stranger, a.k.a. Joe, um, <laughs> so perfectly. <laughs> a.k.a. Blondie. He's Blondie in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, she's not even really blonde. It's like kind of a light-ish brown hair, but not even to the point where I would like say it's light brown. It's just brown. Well, maybe maybe Blondie, Blondie is kind of just like like a gringo. It's just kind of like oh, a generic yeah, term for all, because because Tuco's supposed to be Mexican, right? He's just he's played by Eli Wallach, who's this Jewish dude from like the Bronx, I think, or something. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I, again, I just love the story and the character of the stranger. Is so awesome. It just, everything he yep. does is awesome. He, he's just such a pleasure and a joy to watch on screen. And every time he flips his poncho to reach for his gun is the coolest thing. Oh, yeah. Planet. Yeah, we didn't even mention what he's wearing. He's got that classic poncho, which I, which I ought to mention, too. If we're looking at this as a trilogy, the good, the bad, and the ugly, if there is any character continuity, or, or excuse me, if there is any story continuity, the good, the bad, and the ugly is the prequel to this film because the poncho that he wears throughout the majority of this film, he picks up in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. It's yeah. kind of like a little little nod there. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like I don't know. There's not a lot of continuity here. Again, <laughs> <laughs> this is the John Carpenter Apocalypse trilogy of Spaghetti Westerns. but <laughs> And it's the John Carpenter Apocalypse trilogy of Spaghetti Westerns also because they're freaking good. Like yeah. I mean, the first movie in that trilogy is the thing, which is the best one. So that it's a you know you're in favor of that, but I disagree. This is not the best one, but it's very good. And there's something I love. Again, I I, I mentioned earlier. I don't generally talk a lot about acting 
in dubbed films or even in subtitled films because like really i don't know how good a performance they're doing can you know delivering the line you can talk about like physical acting and stuff but that's what i'm going to talk about here is that sergio leone with his close-ups a lot of it is i think he has just really good actors doing it but like that man can get so much out of a really good close-up on someone's face like you just tell so many stories and just emotions from like the the look of someone's brow and and we see that here i mean we do more of it in the good the bad and the ugly a lot of that is that movie is about an hour longer or at least certain edits of it are mm-hmm. and but i i love his use of the close-ups and then he has those beautiful landscape shots too in this beautiful area the tabernus desert these by these theme parks that i would love to go to (laughs) yeah i just uh oh man i i love the style i love how it's you know it's uniquely shot it's it's not as unique to me because i've seen other leone movies but it's certainly it's like just yeah it's it's different from from so many westerns and it's so much more compelling and even though it's like kind of slow at times even even certain scenes are slow like even the final shootout like the whole thing is it's before we actually get to the literal like when the stranger pulls his gun it's just he's kind of just walking around and getting shot and it's that whole thing is very slow yeah but it's incredibly compelling too yeah and and the thing that makes all these things more well, one of the things that makes all these things more compelling or exciting or, I don't know, whatever, insert emotion here, is the score. Yes. The score yeah, is absolutely I mean, fantastic in this. I've mentioned the score a number of times. I don't think we can spend enough. I don't think we can, there's anything we can do talking about it to really do it justice. But this is a fantastic score. Again, Ennio Morricone. He's actually he's my favorite composer of all time. Bernard Herrmann's up there. And obviously, you know, no one has done more classic film scores, film themes than John Williams, but he's probably my number three. But Ennio Morricone is so great. And he has these, he's such unique ways, at least in these spaghetti westerns, of like just unique sounds. He does these, a lot of the, I mentioned the whistling, but he does these little, these instruments that you don't usually hear in, in film scores. And it's just interesting and unique. And, and you just hear that and you hear just a couple notes of it. And that is, that's like the auditory representation of the western. Yes, yeah. Like, I don't know how else to say it. It just is. Well, yeah, I mean, I... You can see the Western when you hear his music. Yeah, I I think in the score for this, at one point, he uses a wood block. I believe it. In one of his beats, you know? He's got that, um, he's he's got, I don't know if it's a piccolo, but he's got, like, a really, really high-pitched kind of instrument that he uses for that thing he does. Yeah, Yeah, to Um, call the... I don't uh, think it is a piccolo, but it's something... Yeah, well, isn't that the same thing Willy Wonka uses to call the... Uh... Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> Willy Wonka's ripping off Morricone. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you want to enter the ninja now, Jim? Oh, my God. Uh, I would love to enter the ninja. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, you got to help me out with the name You know of the who else again. would love to enter the ninja? Uh, Susan ew. George. What's wrong with you? It's, have you watched the film? That's, that's what happened. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Ugh, <laughs> uh, already getting into it. Yeah, what's the name of the director for this again? Menachem Golan. Golan. I've heard both. I Golan seems more right, but Golan Globus, the production company, doesn't sound right. So I usually say Golan Globus, but I might say Golan when I refer to him. I don't. I've seen the Canon Films documentary. It's been a while, but you know okay. uh, he's I'll just, a I'll just special, leave the pronunciation special of the person. name to you. 
Oh, um, God. <laughs> yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, this movie is directed by uh, an Israeli director. It's starring uh, Frank Nero. Franco. Thank you. Franco. You're right. Uh, Franco Nero, uh, who, again, as we already mentioned, got his who big start. famously fiddled while Rome burned. Oh, shut up. <laughs> that was actually, actually, I like that joke. That was a good one. Uh, yeah, so he got his big start in... in uh, and uh, also started Django. the revolution in, in Spain as well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Franco. Yeah, was he and his was... house was used for... That's what I was going to um, say. The hatchet for the honeymoon. <laughs> or his yeah, vacation exactly. home or whatever. Yeah, wow. Oh, it's all it's all coming together. You know, our universe of our podcast is really coming together. Yeah, so th- this is a really weird movie because, as we said, it's directed by an Israeli, filmed in the Philippines. Who, f- first of all, is not much of a filmmaker. He's a producer. He usually did not... It, to me, anyways, it's unusual because he was not a... He's not a Tarantino. He's more of a Weinstein, and I don't mean that in saying yeah. he's a pervert. I mean he probably <laughs> is, but he's like a—he's the guy that throws money at the movies. He's the guy that gets the movies made. He doesn't make them, so it's weird uh. to kind of see him as a director. This is probably the first, probably the only movie I've seen him direct. I don't know. It's yeah. probably not the only movie he directed, but yeah, he's—he's he's producing all the Death Wish sequels. He's not directing them. Yeah, I don't know if he should—if he should have directed any movies after this. I hope he didn't, but I, I also kind of hope he did after watching this. We've got this really weird movie starring Filipinos, Americans, Brits, Japanese people, Italians, and it's supposed to be this kind of, I don't even know what you'd call it, like this, this American ninja action movie. I guess, right? Is, like, is I that guess, fair to call yeah. it that? Well, first of all, this, as I understood it, I, I don't know if this is Wikipedia or IMDb, but supposedly the ninja was not a super well-known thing in America at the time, which is kind of hard to believe hmm. looking back. But, like, that this movie is largely responsible for, like... No, really? People being aware of ninjas, or it kind of started sort of a ninja craze that led to (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all of that garbage. Oh, my God. I don't... I don't is know. That... I mean, it's, there is a scene where they explain what ninjas are, so it would yeah. make sense if that's true, you know, because they have to say, like, oh, yeah, feudal Japan, there was this pe- people who practice ninjutsu, and it's like, yeah, th- th- so it kind of seems like that is the case. That's what I've heard, though. Huh. Oh, my God. I hope that's true. Okay. Well, I want to I wanna walk you through my— Where would the ninja be without this film? We would have no <laughs> Miami connection. Oh my God! Well, listen, I want to I want to give you a quick walkthrough of uh, of how I sat down to watch this movie, okay? And what my opening presumably on were. a chair, exactly. Yeah, I grabbed a beer, I cracked a beer, I plugged my laptop into the TV, and I started this. And I was greeted, Patrick, with this montage of a man wearing like a classic kind of a black ninja suit, uh, uh, <laughs> with the opening around. credits music, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's twirling around various weapons, you know, and using them. And I'm like, you know what? I'm digging this, actually. I'm digging this. And he's got, like, a bunch of different weapons. But then they get progressively, like, more ridiculous. Okay. And he's got, like, a mace at one point and then, like, a bow and arrow and a blow dart. And you're like, what is, like, what are we watching? But I'm still digging it at this point. I'm Eventually like, oh. swinging a pitchfork around. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, bazooka? Like, you can't, you can't make that look ninja-like. Dude, he starts swinging that thing that uh, David Carradine was promoting. You know, that garden hose thing. Oh, He's I thought you were going to say that thing that David Carradine kills himself with. It's just a <laughs> rope, I think. <laughs> oh, poor David Carradine. But anyways, yeah, so I'm digging this so far. And then this semi-decent montage of ninja skills comes to an abrupt end with the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> 
And out of nowhere, from the right side of the frame, this this white ninja jumps in with like a flying kick. And w- when you say white ninja, I mean he is a white person, but yeah, he's wearing white person, all white too. And yeah, I and wearing, wearing white clothing. Because he he's very in. white. Oh, very white, yes. But he flies in from like the right side of the frame with a flying kick and completely whiffs, completely misses the black ninja. But the black ninja still takes a dive and it's all in slow-mo. So like it's just on your screen. Yeah, it's hard like, to 15 miss. 15 seconds. Yeah, it's, and, I, and I said to myself, oh, this is going to be one of those movies. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know what one of those movies is, but uh, I got to just say, Absolutely leading ridiculous. off here, yeah. this is one of the rare movies, at least so far it's been rare. This is a movie I had not seen before doing this episode. I mean, I saw it, obviously. I'm not going to talk about a movie that I've never seen. But before we were getting ready to do this episode, I had never seen it. That's and funny, because I have seen this one. Had you? No, I haven't. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> no. I mean, no, I wouldn't. I mean, the way you were describing it, it didn't sound like that. But it wouldn't. it's not like this movie's obscure. I mean, it's not like it's North by Northwest or like this classic action adventure film. But Listen, it's like when you told me. I, I feel like the Ninja trilogy is kind of like. You know, people people know about it. People, people, action movie fans know about the Ninja Trilogy. I mean, it's a, it's got that canon film connection, which was the canon films. You know, big there's big cult audience there with like, you know, Death Wish three and the Delta Force and like all those Chuck Norris like missing in action kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm not saying they're all trash. Well, no, they are all <laughs> trash. But I'm not saying they're they're all like not worth watching. But they are like they embrace trash and they embrace sleaze on in levels you don't really see in like mainstream action movies and some of those movies were pretty mainstream enter the ninja i believe is a pretty successful film i'm not not saying it was like raiders of the lost ark it did raiders of the lost ark you know spielberg numbers the box office or anything but i mean these movies early canon especially i think they found some reasonably large success in in their releases and it wasn't until you know you, you get to the (laughs) <laughs> the masters of the universe era where canon was kind of flaming out a bit but yeah I, I don't know yeah so i had seen this i had not seen this movie and i agree the opening credits was just like odd i didn't know what to make of it i liked the font they used they went with the um the panda express font which i think is always <laughs> exciting yeah i was gonna uh, say mandarin <laughs> font yeah yeah, no, it, it, it's just like, it, I feel like I'm looking at the menu at uh, Panda Express. That's what it reminded me of. And, <laughs> and it's like, okay, the music's not terrible. It's not great. I actually, I kind of, later on, I think the score becomes kind of awful in its own way. But, the, um, yeah, and then, then this opening scene. I mean, I understand what you're talking about with the kick itself, but I enjoyed this opening action scene. I mean, I didn't know what the hell was happening, but that's part of what I enjoyed about it. Yeah, well, but this was a great... uh, you you said you cracked open a beer. That reminds me, actually, you can keep going, but I'm yeah, getting yeah. myself something. <laughs> oh my god, you're so lucky! I got to work tomorrow morning. I can't have anything. Lucky you. Well, this opening action scene, I totally love, as you said. And uh, to be honest, most of the like fighting and stuff in here is pretty good. It's pretty decent. Like uh, the only thing that actually takes you out of this opening scene is the actual white ninja himself. He looks a little ridiculous. Yeah, a couple things kind of took me out a bit. I mean, obviously, White Ninja, in general, just Franco Nero. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I love Django. I've mentioned that. <laughs> um, Franco Nero with his mustache is like the least ninja-looking person. <laughs> to be fair, we don't see the mustache because he's, um, he's got his little ninja mask or whatever. Because <laughs> you only kind of see his, <laughs> He's got his, like, the bridge of the nose up to the eyes. That's kind of all you see of him. 
Yeah. Which is convenient because it's the stuntman most of the time, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, and especially because I read that Franco Nero was like a last minute replacement for this movie. I don't know. I think. Yeah. I think well, they, they were going to get a guy that was more. I think they were basically going to have mostly a stunt performer be the lead. And yeah. that's essentially what ends up happening because it's not Franco Nero in like any of the action. But Well, whatever. I read. I read because I watched this on Amazon Prime. And I read that Franco Nero, as you're right, was hired to replace a stuntman that they had hired who was like super well trained in ninjutsu, in ninjutsu, jujitsu, all the itsus and and whatevers, you know. But uh, he then just became the stuntman for Nero. Okay, yeah. So he's still in the movie. He's still starring in the movie. So okay, yes, yeah, yeah. So it's still mostly him, but they got Franco Nero, I guess, because name to do the talking bits i guess well i mean well they, they know he's dubbed he's next exactly, to him the talking yeah, which is bits. the weirdest part <laughs> and he's like the but i guess canon films kind of had this they had this kind of fascination with like stars but can canon i actually wrote about this a bit on the grandma sophia's cookies blog i, I actually wrote a little retrospective of like charles bronson's career that mm-hmm. if you want to read you can check it out but canon really really wanted to be a major studio so they were constantly imitating a major studio, but just doing it on a smaller scale. So they would get like real legitimate actors and real people to do like music scores and stuff. It's just they wouldn't pay them that much so that it would get mostly people that were like over the hill. And that's why we have Christopher George in this. And that's like, um, <laughs> I mean, Christopher George, I'll, I'll just say up front is my favorite part about this movie. I, he's he's outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like Franco Nero, I think they're they're kind of aiming for. I mean, I'm sure this film was you know they were hoping to be a hit in the United States, but I think the Franco Nero casting is like also like, hey, let's cover our bases in Europe because he was probably a bigger star there. Yeah, so it's like yeah, but 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 it was also like Django was 1966. I know, so it's 15 like, years ago. Like yeah. Franco Nero's over the hill. He well, doesn't look know, like he's in great shape. Well, but you know, so those, he's certainly there, not in ninja a... shape. No, there is a bit though where he's where he's shirtless later, and I'm like, you know what? He's actually in pretty good shape. I'm gonna hand it to him on this. Well, I mean, pretty good shape, but it, 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 we're talking ninja shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's not, not that. And also, I would just like to point out: look, if you haven't seen it, look at the poster of this movie. It's the most oh, pathetic looking thing <laughs> because he's doing the flying jump kick, but yeah. it, but it's but it's Franco Nero, and it just doesn't look right. It looks so stupid. I I can't really describe it, but it just doesn't look good. It looks like it looks like the box art for like a a train yourself at home ninja workout DVD or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, the Linnea Quigley's horror workout equivalent of ninja <laughs> of ninja training. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. To get back to this opening a fight scene here, I just want to say it's great how there's like a bunch of red ninjas running around because as soon as you see that they're wearing red, it's like that old you're Star Trek. You're thinking Star Trek? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're <laughs> like, oh, they're all getting killed. And that is what happens. But then uh, it turns out actually that it's not that they didn't Star Trek us. They from Russia with loved us because yeah, Franco Nero good. runs around killing people the whole time. And then he runs up to uh, like this head guy standing on his porch and he just slices his head off. Uh-huh. And he walks inside, and it turns out nobody actually died. This was all like a training exercise. Everybody's still uh-huh. alive, except for one guy has a scar on his face. Poor guy. And this guy whose head he cut off, they game of death dust, you know, with yes. the fake Dean Jagger in this. <laughs> yeah, I was going, <laughs> you know? I was going to the make that The paper mache head. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all coming around, you know. But uh, Oh, can I talk about my favorite moment in this scene really quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so the white ninja he like jumps over a guy and then kind of goes he's slightly downhill he's on a lower level than this other guy he pulls out his bow and arrow (laughs) and he fires a couple arrows and the ninja catches them which is really cool but it's also kind of funny because he catches them away from his body which means they would have missed anyways (laughs) Um, but but i I love it it's it's really cool like it's a fun little little ninja stunt there yeah, I also, like. I mean, I thought it was kind of ridiculous, but I thought it was fun how he started pulling out, like, every single weapon <laughs> known to ninjas. Oh, yeah, I yeah. don't know where that, that bow and arrow came from. Yeah, or, like, the blow <laughs> I, No, because I don't think he's running with it, is he? <laughs> I don't think so, no. But anyway, this is where we learned that the ninja's name is Cole, and he is the white ninja, and he's, like, awarded this scroll of ninjutsu. And as he, <laughs> as they literally describe it in the movie, meaning... That he passed a ninja test, and mm-hmm. now he's a full-fledged ninja. Yeah. So, him and like him, his master, his ninja buddies go outside to drink. But there's this one angry ninja named Hasegawa, mm-hmm. and he's yeah. upset that played by famous ninja star. I can't really pronounce his name. I I feel like I've I've heard people say Sho Kusagi. Yeah, that's what. But I it's K O S U G I. That it seems like it'll be. Ko- Kosugi or maybe Koski, uh, because like the sometimes the the U's you don't really pronounce in in Japanese like Yakuska. Yeah. There's like a U that you're not really pronouncing in that city's name. So I don't know, but he you know Sho Hasegawa. Uh, he, I think he appears in all three of the Ninja Trilogy films, and he, he did some other stuff. So he's you know it's that Sonny Chiba era of like martial arts star where I guess Bruce Lee was doing his or not Bruce Lee, he's dead, but. Uh, I guess Jackie Chan is doing his thing too, but like this is that era of martial arts actors where it's like he was one of the bigger ones of this time. Yeah, I will tell you, I looked up this actor and he's actually a master in karate, kendo, judo, kabuto, which I don't even know what it what what that is, aikido, and ninjutsu. I was going to say, I looked up this actor, and and at least according to Wikipedia, he's an extra in The Godfather. And I'm like, what the hell? I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) I don't believe that. I'm sorry. Someone just put that in there. I I don't think that's true. (laughs) You know, other than the, like, yeah, I was like, that's, uh, sure, whatever. But uh, From the the... people that brought you The Godfather comes, (laughs) enter the ninja. (laughs) I agree with that. That'd be great. But do you remember he? Do you remember the movie Blind to Fury from 1989? I've never seen it, but that's is that Rutger Hauer or is that Dolph Lundgren? I get those two mixed up. Oh, Rutger shit. Hauer, right? I don't remember. But all all I know is I know the movie. Oh yeah, I think it is Rutger Hauer. Okay, it is. Yeah, yeah. So he starred in that movie, and he also starred in some <laughs> great movies that I wrote down because I knew you'd get a kick out of them. One is uh, Bruce Lee fights back from the grave. <laughs> oh, I did see the title of that. I, I had never heard of that, but the second I saw that, I'm like, that that's on our list. I, I threw that on there. <laughs> I had never heard of this, but I'm like, okay, this is Bruceploitation. Here we go. Yeah. And the bad news bears go to Japan. <laughs> I have heard of that. I did know there was a, there was a Japanese sequel in there. Uh, poor guy. His career really went downhill. I heard he had something to do with like the stuff in Kill Bill, though, but I don't know. I think that was mostly the guy who played Johnny Moe. I forget his name in real life. Was it the guy that sold the garden hose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, great, great stuff. Well, so now, so now, um, Ninja Cole, uh, he goes to the Philippines <laughs> because it was all war. That's buddy. right. You're right. You're right. He goes to the Philippines for whatever reason, and uh, it's cheap to film there. There's a lot of this. This is the era of a lot of like Filipino action movies. Movies like Raw Force. A lot of movies were shot in the Philippines. Some of them are like Filipino productions, but they made some like 
big time schlock action movies at this time. Yes, and this is definitely no exception to that. No, this is um, probably more a higher budget than like all of the other ones. But yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> at least a little bit in that vein for sure. This isn't Raw Force. Raw Force is like complete hack job, but that's like also incredible. <laughs> that movie's just amazing. I've never seen it. That's why I assume that's on our list. So I can't wait to see it. Oh yeah, no, it's we got zombies. Time. We got we got you got zombie ninjas. I guess is really oh, the main key. Zombie ninjas. Cameron Mitchell. It's it's like this action adventure like. Yeah, oh man, the Raw Force is just one of the best one of the best B movies ever made, I think. <laughs> well, I like that Ninja Cole flies to the Philippines to Manila to visit his friend yeah. from the army. And while he like right after he gets to his friend's house, he sexually assaults his wife, his friend's wife. More uh, of a, just beats the crap out of her. He's not really a... <laughs> well, she meets him outside with a shotgun. And yes, he knocks know. the gun out of her hand and then <laughs> he grabs her tits and throws her to the ground. I mean, you know, <laughs> if this movie, I, I mean, all I can say is, I'm not saying this is right, but maybe in Menachem Golan's worldview, it, it becomes consensual later on in the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's, yeah, that's yeah. not how morality maybe that was the or setup. the law works. Yeah, but yeah. That, that was the setup for the love story that's coming, you know? Uh, <laughs> love story that's completely out of place. It's it's like in the novel Jaws. It's just like, why are we doing this? It's like, what? I don't know if you've read that book, but like Brody has an affair with, uh, or Brody's wife has an affair with Hooper, and it's like, what 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 are we yeah. doing? What, what is yeah. this? Dude, I have, speaking of out of place, though, I have a list of things that were out of place in this movie that I'm going to read to you later. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the exhibit A is the um, Franco Nero's dub actor. It, it's it's just like an overpoweringly deep voice. I mean, it's not, it's not that deep, but it's just, like, it's, I guess it's the problem that you get with so many movies where someone's dubbed, but it's just, like, it sound, there's an otherworldly sound to it. And I think it's, yeah. it's more, it's more distracting in a movie like this where not everyone is like that than it is in, in a movie like, I don't know, you know, Suspiria, like any of the Italian movies where everyone's dubbed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is definitely weird. It, it, it's almost like his voice... Watching him speak in certain venues, I guess, on on certain in certain scenes, you know that that's definitely not his voice because it's not reverberating around the set, like it would. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, that's probably a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, you you can definitely just picture somebody sitting in front of a mic doing it in a sound booth or whatever or wherever he did it. Manalo oh, yeah. Golan's van <laughs> next to the Manila airport. <laughs> Ninja Cole's friend is Frank, and like you said, uh, they were friends in the army. And Frank has his wife that was sexually assaulted, sort of, named Mary Ann. And, uh, it was they... played by Susan George, who, again, this is a movie with Christopher George in it. Christopher George made a bunch of movies with his wife. And I was thinking for a moment, because I couldn't remember what Linda Day George looked like. I was thinking this was Christopher George's wife, and I was thinking her name was Susan Day George, but it's not. Well, Boy George and Army, Army friend Frank are uh, running a plantation, right? Is that it? They're running like this plantation yeah, in the Philippines? Yeah, I, I, I would – I mean, you're not wrong, but I would probably use a different word just because I, I mean I – They're wealthy landowners slaves. with Filipino slaves. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean that's that's what the word that's... plantation means to most people. But no, you're right. I mean they, they have like sugar cane plantations yeah, or, and stuff and... still to this day. In the world. So it's like, yeah, it's a plantation. Yeah, but it's it's an incredibly or it's not that lucrative. But Christopher George wants it. 
because he knows a way to make it lucrative. Yeah, now, by the way, this guy, great character. He's like the the head bad guy in this movie. What's his name? Isn't it uh, the character? It's some kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, Venarius, which yeah, makes it, it sound like, like a, a venereal disease. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, this guy's like evil, quote unquote, evil lair is on the like top floor of a building. This guy's um, so great. Yeah. With a swimming pool and his office. Where he's is got, just, just got like, like grandma's working out in there. And <laughs> I, I know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's this stupid swimming pool. And at the far end of the swimming pool is his like desk. But all around yeah. the swimming pool are like his lackeys. And they all have their uh-huh. own desks like right next to the swimming pool. Yeah. And the pool's just full of women all the time. <laughs> it's just like It's just like the weirdest thing. Allow me to... Uh, fanboy out over Christopher George. I love Christopher George. I have no reason to, or I have few <laughs> reasons to. I just find him fascinating because I've seen, because as I've mentioned earlier this season, Grizzly is one of those movies I grew up with. And then like years later, I watched it and I'm like, okay, who is this guy? Christopher George. And I looked him up and he was actually like a big deal in like the late 60s. He was on some television series, which I haven't, I, you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with it, but I looked it up and it looks like it was kind of like a 30 dozen type thing. It's huh. like a, a group of like Americans and like one British soldier were just like going around. They basically had this like covert mission just to like mess with Rommel and his um, his army. And it's like okay, that sounds kind of interesting. But like yeah, so he was like famous from that. He had he had some movies. Then he's in Grizzly. He's the lead in Grizzly, and he's in Pieces, which I find fascinating just because Pieces is probably my favorite B movie of all time, certainly up there. But also like it's just Pieces is maybe that's one of the trashiest movies i've ever seen and it's funny to me that an actor as relatively accomplished as christopher george even if we're saying he's like past his prime in 1982 which i mean he died in 83 not that he's that old he died young but like it's fascinating to me that they got like a a relative a-lister in a movie like that because that movie is just filth personified pieces is <laughs> and not only that but his wife's in it too and so, so it's oh, like a no. little it's like a love story with those two <laughs> um i don't know i but but i like i love christopher george i would have thought he's a columbo villain because he's like he's, he yeah. fits that era he's that era of actor. and he looks like he one. has he has that look. He has the look of, like, classic Columbo villain. I was shocked. I looked him up. He wasn't in a Columbo episode. Well, you know, I mean, Christopher George is just chilling by a pool with a bunch of babes. Why does he need to be in an episode of Columbo? Well, no, that's a good point. And there's um, <laughs> That's a good point. There's a, <laughs> there's a Bond villain element to Venarius here. Yeah, you know because what I mean? he's... Yeah, well... He's got these like He's got this elaborate dress. He's got a henchman who we first... We meet this guy before... We yeah. meet Venarius, but his he's, name is the he's hook. got a hook. Yeah. Yeah. Which is classic. There's the guy in Live and Let Die who's got that kind of claw hand thing. He's just like this sad little man who you're supposed to be both like intimidated by and you're supposed to make fun of him almost as soon as you see him because he looks so ridiculous. Like he's wearing like a Panama hat and like a white suit with like a red carnation when you first meet him. And he's got this ridiculous hook for his hand. Oh, and look, what's he doing? He's like shaking down like a local shop owner for money and it mm-hmm. turns out he's working for venarius and right venarius is involved in the story because he wants the land that frank and marianne have because it's marianne rich and the in professor oil. yes <laughs> that's what i was thinking of the entire time <laughs> marianne and yeah. the very 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 drunk professor in this case. <laughs> yeah 
again, their their land is rich in oil, so the bad guys. Yeah, want this it. movie really did not have much plot. It, no, I was it kind didn't. of amazed at how little plot it had, and it I'm didn't. fine with that. It's a ninja movie, but like, yeah. Yeah, well, it's also barely a ninja movie. <laughs> oh then, well, if you if you. <laughs> Well, again, yeah, okay, so we got to talk about this for a second. I'm sorry to throw you off again. You know, I'm sorry to make your editing life miserable. Folks, this is the first episode Jim is editing for us, so if Woo! it sucks, blame him. Yeah, blame me. Uh, it's not not the many, many tangents we're going on through this. but It's, it's not the so, roaring thunder that I've been having to deal with. Oh, I forgot about that, yeah. Um, so anyways, we got this... Um, I used to have this conversation when I was in, you know, junior high, maybe high school, but like I'd I'd bring this thing up because we have these like I'll, I'll, for lack of a better word I'll say classes, but these like classes of like historical figure characters that are all like awesome and we've seen them depicted in like fiction and movies and stuff and and we understand deep down that how we've seen them depicted is probably very very different from how they actually were. But I used to like great conversation starter. You know, you're on a date, you ask this question: Who would you rather be? Would you rather be a classic Western cowboy? Would you rather be a ninja, a medieval knight, or a pirate? There might be another one. May oh, you know what? I'll go. I'll say like a private detective from like the '40s. You know, that kind of that hard boiled detective kind of thing. Oh man. Because those are, like, the classic, like, we've seen them all in fiction. We know they're not really what they are. Like, I don't, I genuinely have no idea what a ninja actually is, but I've seen ninja movies. And so I know what Hollywood makes me want, wants to make me think a ninja is. Same with, like, yeah, the, the Old West wasn't anything like what we see in A Fistful of Dollars, like, obviously. No, but and you know what, though? If I, ninja if I was... versus cowboy, who are you picking? Who would you cowboy. rather be? cowboy. Definitely I think so, but it also might just be like I love like the des- I love deserts to me are just like so beautiful. I don't yeah, know, nothing and against I, I like feudal horses, Japan. You know, I like I, th- okay. I think guns are pretty neat and cowboy hats are pretty awesome. And if you could get to wear a poncho, then you know that's and, you know and sit by a campfire at night, then call it a day. I'm yeah, done. wear that's your um, yeah, okay, yeah. It's <laughs> like I'm just picturing you wearing your made of the mist poncho and it's like what I thought we were supposed to bring ponchos. <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs> Don't I look cool, guys? Do I look like a real cowboy? Are you just like Marty McFly in Back to the Future Part 3 where you've got, like, that pink <laughs> cowboy costume? <laughs> Dude, I'd rock it. I'd rock it. I think pirate is the way to go of, of like, all of those groups. I think pirate's oh, you know probably the most interesting life. You know what, though? Scurvy. Everybody smells no, I mean, terrible. But, but, yeah, it's not like it's probably the Old West be an didn't have life. its disease. I mean, you're still shitting in an outhouse in the Old West, you know? Yeah, yeah. Medi- medieval, a medieval French knight lives a miserable life by today's standards. Like, all these people would. So I'm not I'm not going to say no to a pirate just because of the diseases that they have. Because everybody's got their problems. I guess the 40s detective is probably the least. But, th- but that's because it's the most modern, so. Yes, you know, you know, like, because like, my top three, it was, it was cowboy, pirate, and then detective. So, that's how I would. So you're anti ninja. <laughs> I am very anti ninja. I w- I would say that of <laughs> of like all of those like the skills that those people have. Yeah. Right. I think being like this incredible like swordsman martial arts dude who can just do flips and stuff and throw ninja stars around. I think that might be the coolest thing to have. Yeah. Well, you'd definitely be the most fit, right? I mean, you probably would be, but I think there's a case for the medieval knight because you're whenever you dress up for battle, you're wearing like 35 pounds of armor, and you you have to be very strong to do that. Like there, like literally, we do not know historically how Joan of Arc could have possibly worn the armor that we know she wore. 
because she was, you know, 90 or 80, you know, 80, 75 pounds. Like, it doesn't make sense that someone that small could have worn that armor and could have even gotten on a horse. Like, like so I don't know. I, mean, I just but, picture Joan of Arc laying out in the middle of a field, <laughs> not able to get Joan up. Of, well, I mean, maybe it happened once or twice. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Or it'd be like in that scene in the silent movie with Mel Brooks where they all put on, I don't know if you've seen the scene, but uh, the movie, but when they go to speak with, I think it's Liza Minnelli, they like sneak onto the studio. They're all wearing like night costumes because they're, I guess, trying to not to get thrown out or something, but they're at the cafeteria and they're trying to sit down with Liza Minnelli. And it's like 15 minutes of them, like just falling over the chairs and getting back <laughs> up and not being able to sit down because the armor is so <laughs> non non uh Oh my god. <laughs> it's just not helping them. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It just goes on and on. And at first it's <laughs> only kind of funny, but with each like 15 seconds or so, it gets funnier and funnier. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's great. Okay, well, we do have to get back to Enter the Ninja, unfortunately. So let's re enter this ninja. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. Like Frank and Marianne are, are Venarius and his goons are trying to stiff arm them off the property. And. Ninja Cole keeps protecting them. Like, he keeps beating up the bad guys, and he keeps scaring Hook. Or I the like hook. the bar scene a lot, when he when he hooks Hook to the... Um, the to the post. The, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, that yeah. scene's a lot of fun. I like that, too. I also like the scene where uh, Hook has to go out and, like, recruit some guys to bring back to this town, because Ninja Cole's either killed all of them or scared them all away. This guy is going to pick a fight with Hook, and Hook just, like, hooks him by the balls. And he just kind of proves that... I don't, I don't know that he's slightly better than a than a muscle head than a disabled man. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I guess Hook is Hook Hook is the disabled one. Excuse me. I'm I like sorry. I like how you said that. I was like, what is the guy mentally challenged? I didn't know that. No, no, I'm sorry. I was thinking of it the other way around. I guess I guess whenever Cole picks on yeah yeah <laughs> picks on hook it's it's like hey i'm better than this disabled guy and yeah it's then like, he it's hooks like him to the pole kid. and he and he he has like a stick around or like a hang around line but it takes him too long to get there you, you got to say that right away you know you got to follow the arnold formula the arnold the arnold little pun one-liners are some of the dumbest but also most satisfying you know moments in motion picture history is like let off some steam you know <laughs> like <laughs> moments like that I, I think we could have used some better better timing with those lines here or yeah, really just the one that. line i think yeah so venarius can't get this land and hook isn't helping because hook sucks so he needs some help so to counter ninja cole venarius wants to hire an actual ninja to fight ninja cole it and takes he... us a while to get to this point because each time they go up to venarius and say like hey we're having problems and he's like what the hell's wrong with you and it's just like oh it's just it's just one guy stopping you what the hell and then eventually it's like the third or fourth time they go to him then he learns that he's a ninja so then he wants to specifically hire a ninja you're right uh they do like venarius figures out that ninja cole is a ninja because they have like semi-tricked frank into coming to this abandoned building where they're gonna force him to sign over his land but ninja cole shows up and kills all these guys like these 30 guys around the building that are waiting to pounce with assault rifles on frank if he doesn't sign and uh, they're like oh my god this guy's really good and he's a ninja so we need a ninja so that's when venarius wants to hire a ninja obviously and they get who else but hasagawa can i i, I want to say something about hasagawa because he has that outburst at the dinner table earlier because he's upset that Django has been named a ninja or has been granted the rank of ninja or whatever. 
And I think it's funny that this movie, this movie about a white guy being a ninja, has found a way to make him the victim of racism. Because <laughs> that's clear what I mean. I mean, it's like because that's clear. Like, like it's like, oh, come on, Hasegawa, what's your problem? And he's like, oh, my my family was like, the, you know, they're dis- we descended from the samurai of the like. So his thing completely is that he's not Japanese, which I may or may not be. Uh, I mean, the master is like, no, no, you don't understand. He passed his ninja test. You know, he got he's got twenty twenty ninja vision or whatever. So it's like he qualifies <laughs> to be a ninja. But but it's still like this like oh no but it's but like in reality it's like it, it, seeing Franco Nero in that ninja costume just doesn't look right I think I'm with Hasegawa on this it just well, doesn't yeah, look right it's also definitely the mustache you know when when he takes it off when he yeah. takes the little ninja mask off and you're like oh ew what is this an 80s stash get out of here he looked so much cooler in Django when he was younger. Oh, I so bet. That, like five o'clock, classic kind of Eastwood five o'clock shadow look. Yeah, I bet it was a really hard slope to slide down for him. You know what I mean? One day you're shooting up the KKK with a Gatling gun. The next day you're missing someone on a flying jump hook or jump <laughs> kick, rather. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Age. Age and shitty movies. He's not even that old. He's like 40 when this movie's made. 40 or 41. Uh, that's kind of he was pretty young when Django came out. He also definitely looks older than 40. I, I would have pegged him He does. Him like 50 I, I agree. I think he looks 50. I think he looks older than Christopher George. Yes, I agree. I, I'd agree with that, yeah. But speaking of those two, Django decides to sneak into Christopher George's office to snoop around to figure out why he wants this land from Frank and Marianne. And he's working with this old man who runs a store, a dollar store, and the old man's name is Dollars. Really, really The original. old man who is, we've seen him before. He's the grandpa in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh, wow. Another Back to the Future connection because he's old man Peabody, the guy who's trying to breed pine trees. <laughs> wow, look at that. Wow, when did Enter the Ninja come out? 1981, right? 81, yeah. This this is before Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Back to the Future. Wow, he hadn't hit his stride yet. This is great. This is going into it. <laughs> the <laughs> funny thing is he looks like a crazy old coot in, in all three movies. I love it. It's like, he, 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 you find, find your type, man. He, he, found, <laughs> no, he found his role. He was typecast, but I'm sure he loved it. Yeah, so... Ninja Cole breaks into Venarius' office. They sneak around. They're looking for any information on why Venarius wants the land. And then Dollars turns on a projector, which he thinks is going to be like... And it's got a reel on it, and he thinks it's going to be like a porno film. But it turns out that it's like footage and of... And for Hase- a moment, you think it is, too, because <laughs> Manaham <laughs> yeah. Golan is directing this. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, no. Uh, but yeah, it turns out it's Hasegawa killing people. It's just footage of of Hasegawa brutally murdering murdering people. So Cole's like, oh my god, I know that guy. That's Hasegawa. I think we're going to fight eventually. Well, he's busy doing Brilliant whatever. Brilliant foreshadowing. You you don't expect this line to come back later on in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess it's well Cole's snooping around Venarius's place. Hasegawa makes his way to Frank's house, where by this point, Marianne has cheated on Frank with Ninja Cole. Yeah. It, it, that, like, that, just, that whole story just came up out of nowhere, that whole love. Yeah. Like, this it's weird because he's like, he's like friends. I, I don't understand. That's well, such a bizarre well, plot element. There's all kinds of lines in it where she's like, oh, my husband is so drunk now, he can't even get it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing is that, well, they make him an alcoholic. Or at first it sounds like he's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. And, I mean, at, well, he has a drink in like the first scene, but apparently it's been the first one he's had in a while. And then he has this like emotional speech where he admits that he can't get it up. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then thinking... 
thanking his <laughs> his um, buddy, the professor, for this sharing this moment of vulnerability. Cole then just goes and sleeps with his wife like immediately. It's it's just so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it, it is bizarre. It, like when he was thanking him for you know like. <laughs> listening to him about his erectile dysfunction i thought he was thanking him for having sex with his wife you know because because it's like the next day that it happens he's like hey i just want to thanks for being around you know marianne's really happy now i don't know what you've done but she's super happy thanks and you you think you think deep down like cole's like oh shit oh shit oh shit oh shit (laughs) (laughs) he's just like oh i shouldn't have done this (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so but you know hasagawa he puts a swift end to uh, to Frank, and uh, he just lures him out into the in, into their backyard, away from the dinner table. You know, with like sneaky ninja tricks <laughs> by breaking things and tying Marianne to a tree. <laughs> yeah, classic and, ninja stuff. Yeah, yeah, classic ninja stuff. And Frank tries to kill him with a baseball bat, but believe it or not, that doesn't work. And Frank just gets his throat slit while he's trying to help, or I guess save Marianne from from a pine from a, a pine tree, a palm tree. <laughs> Uh, Cole, while all this is going on, Cole returns to the plantation and the village that was like on the plantation that was like home to all these plantation workers is just smoldering like it's been set on fire and he can't find Marianne, but he does find Frank's dead body in the pool. But I, you know, I also, I just realized I glossed over one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Uh, there's like a hard cut from Frank getting murdered to Hasegawa screaming at the camera, holding a couple torches and like lighting this village on fire. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't like, I don't know what's going on, but it's great. I love it. And uh, yeah. So anyway, so, so back, back to it. Like I said, Cole finds Frank's body and uh, he's like, Oh, now I know what I got to do now. I got to kill Hasegawa and Venarius and whoever else, all, all, all the bad people that have, that have killed my friend. Oh, and then also after Cole dies, or after Frank dies, he has a flashback to their time in the army together in somewhere yeah. in Africa, and he starts crying. Which this came up earlier in the movie, way out of left field. Yeah, um, I like agree. around the uh, like around a... the erectile dysfunction stuff. I think when they're at the <laughs> which polo which club. is the most out of left field thing in the entire <laughs> movie, probably. Yeah, yeah. Venarius, he's essentially waiting for Ninja Cole to attack him but he's not hanging out at his penthouse which is where ninja cole thinks he is so he kills a couple guards when he gets to the penthouse and scares all the ladies out of the pool only to be confronted by mr parker who's venarius is like right hand man like his his main henchman yeah the guy and, that kept saying to hook like no don't talk to mr venarius directly or something yeah, like yeah 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 talk to me yeah so mr parker goes oh he's not here he's at like a dilapidated boxing ring in manila i'll drive you there by the way, at this point, Ninja Cole is in his full white ninja outfit, outfit, and he's all kitted out in like with like um, ninja weapons. I also right. the, the all white ninja outfit doesn't really. I don't get much of a ninja vibe from that. That I get like a sci-fi vibe. You know what I yeah, mean? It's like well, it also, it's like it also the super clean weird. thing. It reminds me of like kind of those things you'd wear in like a clean room environment in those like scientific like laboratories and stuff. I it, it's yeah, not a very it, good ninja look. Yeah, it almost looks like a like a like a shitty hazmat suit. You know what I mean? Like it looks like a hazmat suit that yeah has deflated sort of. a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's not getting air. Or maybe it's either. inflated a bit with Franco Nero's oh, uh, no. beer gut. <laughs> oh, poor Franco Nero. So Ninja Cole is is taken to this boxing ring, and while Mister Parker has his back turned, he kills all the people that were in this car that with which they had driven him to this ring yeah and he he, he's snuck into the building and he's hiding somewhere and he just starts picking off all these guards one by one 
until he gets a hold of Mr. Parker. And Venerius, because he's such a bad guy, he doesn't give a shit about Mr. Parker and he shoots Mr. Parker to get at Ninja Cole. I guess the whole point of this here is that Venerius has Marianne. I think he wants to trade the farm for her, or sorry, the, the, the plantation for her. And then kind of anticlimactically, Ninja Cole just, doesn't he throw a sword at him or something? Is that what he does? Yeah, he uh, does something stupid. Yeah, he does something. Oh, uh, 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 a nin- he throws a ninja star to his chest. That's what it is. However, Hasegawa, who was for some reason was lurking beneath the boxing ring the whole time, Literally, while everybody was being killed above, he's just, like, hiding down there. He emerges, and he challenges Ninja Cole to a fight in the ring. And, again, this is a pretty anticlimactic fight. Uh, But it's neat. There's, like, lots of jumping, twirling, kicking. You know, it's very ninja-esque. You know, they're just ninja-ing out there. And uh, Cole eventually manages to stab Hasegawa in the chest. And <laughs> and then he lets him die with honor by beheading him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is our second beheading, our first quote-unquote real one. Yes, yes. Yeah, because the first one they, they game of death does. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's pretty much the end of the movie. Cole saves Marianne. He saves the plantation and the house. And uh, because Frank's dead, she gets the house and the land. She's like, do you want to stay for a while? And he goes, no. I got places to be, toots. Or like whatever he says, you know. And... <laughs> And uh, he goes to the airport where he's going to catch a plane. And then who does he see? Oh, he sees Hook. Hook, who's now working as like a bag boy at the airport. We end on this terrible joke where Cole essentially looks at the camera. Like he looks right at the camera and he goes, I've got to take care of something first. And like, oh, joke. The joke is Hook's going to get murdered. <laughs> no, I think he just <laughs> needed to go to the bathroom. Oh, I think I so. Think yeah, you're probably right. Was. I think it was un- disconnected from Hook. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. This, uh, <laughs> I, you know what, I, I have written in like a few notes that I really liked this movie, and I think this is like a fun movie to put on, just if you're hanging out. But coming off a fistful of dollars, you could, <laughs> this movie is nowhere near it. On well, anything, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just pass the buck. What did you think about this movie, Patrick? I was disappointed by this movie. I, not that I had the highest of expectations, but I figure, okay, canon movie, Ninja, Django, Christopher George, and he was really the only thing that didn't really let me down. I think th- this movie, I mentioned not much plot, but I think really the biggest thing that brings us down is, I think it's the director. You know, he's a, he's a producer. He he should get his J. Lee Tompkins's and his uh, Michael Winners to do the directing. I, I don't think he's got it in him to make a uh, make a big time, you know, fun ninja movie. You know, get get Furstenberg for that kind of thing. It's just not it's not who he is. And and I, and I actually think I read that he wasn't supposed to direct it. I think whoever was supposed to had to like back out at the last minute. So maybe that's you know oh. part of it. Or so I, I I I might be confusing that with like why Franco Nero came in at the last minute to to, to be the lead actor. But yeah, and then I I do think Franco Nero too is just isn't really right for the role. So those are my two big kind of complaints. He almost looks like a redneck ninja. You know what I mean? It's all because yeah, of that stash. Uh, yeah, it's a very Jeff Foxworthy-looking kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, I, you know what? For the most part, I think the movie's fine. It's a fine movie. Uh, it, it's a fine B-movie, I guess is what I mean. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not terrible. No, you know, there's definitely negative things you can say about it. The story, however, is a decent story of, you know, like this... I don't know, like this, this, this story revolving around protecting his friends and then he becomes this vengeful ninja other than like all these small weird diversions it's it's a pretty straightforward story 
It's kind of it's, yeah. it's easy to follow if you're drinking, you know. <laughs> I do think it's weird that Marianne becomes like the focus of the, like the end. Oh, we have to save or not we. Yeah, that's got to save weird. Marianne because like Marianne's his friend's wife, and he didn't. I know they had sex, but like he didn't know her before this movie. That's why she attacked him with the gun. Yeah, that's why. I it's just her kind boobs. of a weird like. Um, it was a weird insertion of a romance plot, and then the romance... It's not romance at the end of the movie so much, but that's still kind of the relationship between those two is still kind of what's driving it at the end, and that's well, just a you know, odd to me. I, I think in a movie called Enter the Ninja, insertion has to be a big part of it, you know? Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not disagreeing. Well, we got the fistful in the last movie. <laughs> and... <laughs> Sorry, insertion and fistful? <laughs> The action in it is is actually pretty decent. You have to admit, like it's it's pretty I, decent action. It's not terrible, but the only scene that really stood out to me is the opening scene, running through the woods, and and I thought, yeah, that was the only one that really. Everything else I thought was like passable. That was the one scene that I thought was like pretty darn good, you know. The one that I thought was pretty good, other than the opening scene, was where he confronts those goons in the uh, like the plantation village. Okay, and he starts attacking them with like a bench. Is that when he rips off uh, Hook's arm? Rips off Hook's hook? No, that's later. Because that's not really an action scene, but that brings up, like, uh, there's a couple moments in this movie where we get, like, really, really cartoony music score. And generally, I don't like the music score. I think in the action scenes, it gets very repetitive. But there's, like, a few moments where they have, like, that exaggeratedly, like... Do you know what I mean? It's it's a moment with Hook. It's like they have the exaggeratedly comedic moment when something happens, and it's almost like a dun 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 dun. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's like it's. I mean, it's not that, but it's like something like, "What are we doing with this?" And I think they have another moment with Christopher George too, where I thought the score was terrible. I thought you know yeah, what? I, I don't even like, remember oh. the score, and that's probably <laughs> that's probably best. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, it's also, it's up against an Ennio Morricone score, so obviously anything's going <laughs> to suck compared to that, to be perfectly fair. And you know what the only thing I thought was weird about this, that it didn't have in it? Nudity. I'm not saying I was looking for it, but I'm surprised that it wasn't in this. You know what I mean? This is like the caliber of movie. Well, yeah, it's Menachem Golan. I mean, he, he uh, <laughs> those, uh, watch that Canon Films documentary. I mean, What's it called, movies, by the way? Do you know? Electric Boogaloo. Because that's uh, um, Break Into Electric Boogaloo was a hit film from Canon Films, but yeah, no, those those movies were big on uh, the biggest explosions, the dumbest explosions, and throwing a lot of nudity. And they're not like Andy Sidaris levels, but you know, their fair share. Yeah, I agree. That is kind of surprising. Well, Jim, which of these two movies did you prefer, A Fistful of Dollars or Enter the Ninja? Well, you know, I've seen A Fistful of Dollars so many times, and uh, so I'm going to have to say, and I'm kidding, uh, it was definitely A Fistful of Dollars. Definitely. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's such a fantastic movie, such a great movie to start a trilogy with, and it's got Clint Eastwood. You know, all the acting is pretty great from foreign actors, and all the, all the uh, dubbing is pretty great. Everything looks cool. And then again, it, it's, it's Clint Eastwood and that character of The Stranger. It's like the coolest thing ever. How can you pass up on something like that? Well, you know, Charles Bronson passed up on it. He was the first choice for the role. But I guess technically it wasn't Clint Eastwood in The Stranger at that point. But yeah, Clint Eastwood famously was far from Sergio Leone's first choice to play that role. I know Bronson. I don't know who else. But anyways, I you know, they made the right pick in the end. 
and Bronson still got his Leone on with Once Upon a Time in the West, so it all works out. But yeah, Fistful of Dollars is the far better and more entertaining, more enjoyable film. And it's not just Eastwood, it's not just the character of The Stranger. I mean, that's a big part, but just the filmmaking too. I just really appreciate the intensity of those close-ups, just the, the way he shoots the shootout kind of scenes. It's just great. But Patrick, the real question is, does it work as a double feature? I'm going to say slightly yes. I know we had a lot of fun making kind of joke connections, some of which are less joke, you know, Spaghetti Western Stars, um, the Panda Express fonts. Oh, wait, no, that's just in the one. (laughs) Um, No, it's a... It's a fun pairing. We get two very different styles of action movie. We get our lame-ass American knockoff of, like, ninja martial arts kind of thing, and we get our not-lame-ass Italo-Spanish knockoff of an American Western thing. And, yeah, I, I think it's just, like, you see kind of these two different styles of film, both with spaghetti western stars and it's an enjoyable enough double feature i don't think enter the ninja is like a great follow-up to a fistful of dollars by any means but you know it's it's good yeah and uh i, I totally agree with you on every point you just said like i like i totally 100 percent agree with you uh the only thing that would make it maybe like a semi unsuitable candidate for double feature is what you kind of pointed out that enter the ninja isn't really the best. The Panda Express font? Yeah, exactly. A little racist. Just a little racist. Uh, No, Enter the Ninja isn't really the best follow-up. And if it was like a little more exciting, a little more like action-centric or like focused on fighting and action and and explosions and stuff, then yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because The Fistful of Dollars is kind of slow. So if you're going to follow that up with an action movie, you want something a bit faster paced, I think. Yeah, and this is just kind of a slow, confusing action movie where to be honest not much happens but like not much happens for the main story but lots of things happen around that main story yeah you know just how you want to structure a screenplay really exactly yeah but uh, yeah i totally agree with you on your points so i would totally see this as a double feature okay patrick what movies are we doing next week so next week we've got as i've hinted at already we've got another italian film this one from dario argento and it is suspiria great from 1977 available on tubi a fantastic film one of my all-time favorite horror movies and we're pairing it with abominable from 2006 which is a movie i don't know much about I know it's, I mean, it's like a Bigfoot movie, right? It's the Abominable Snowman. It's It's also on Tubi. I think they might have a different year listed under it because they have like a director's cut mm-hmm. on Tubi, which seems very odd. That doesn't seem like the type of movie that would have a director's cut. <laughs> but at any rate, we're watching what's on Tubi. So, you know, Suspiria on Tubi, Abominable director's cut on Tubi. There we go. We're going all in. Next with... episode, Tubi episode. So join us next time for some classic Bigfoot action. I, don't <laughs> I really don't know what Abominable is. I, I, I've, I've referenced it before because it it seems like it's like a... It came out in 2006, but it seems like it's like a throwback to like the direct-to-video movies of like the 80s and the 90s. So I'm actually really interested. I'm really excited to see Abominable. And I'm always excited to see Suspiria. Yeah, you know, do you like... <laughs> do you like women trapped in a building together and do you like big feet well have we got the episode for you <laughs> like gross what? are they really trapped in suspense i guess yeah i guess they kind of are well they're trapped at night 
Anyways, thanks for joining us, folks. We hope you'll tune in next week. Yeah, yeah, tune in. Watch us, like us, listen to us, share us with your friends, pass us around. <laughs>